Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui Venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I Venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by First Light, creating proven, versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. All right, everybody, this is the special Louisiana edition. In fact... Ronnie Collins, explain what we're on right now. Uh, we're sitting on a 102-foot houseboat in the middle of Bayou Lafouche. That's right, man. It's like a cruise ship. It is. How, it, how do you, how'd you guys wind up with this thing? So my grandpa actually built it from scratch. Did he really? Yeah, he, um, he got a good deal on some steel. Uh, took about a year. He built the barge. Well, oh, he then, made it from the barge up? I'm talking from the barge up. So anytime we had like, it was kind of slow at work, he would take our, to keep our welders busy, he would send them work on the houseboat. So he, he built the barge first, which took about a year. And then he built the uh, first story and the second story. And then my mom lined up some carpenters to, to do the inside. And you guys can move this thing around depending on where you want to hang out. Correct. We, uh, we have uh, four or five tugboats. And uh, whenever we want to move it, whenever one of them's not on a job, We'll move it. Uh, you better explain your family business. So my family business is uh, oil field construction, m- marine construction. Uh, we actually uh, build oil platforms out in the marsh mm-hmm. and in the uh, bayous. And we have a handful of tugs, um, probably another eight barges. And then we have our, our work crews. Oh, do you guys pull this around to job sites too and stay on it? No, this is strictly just uh, the family houseboat. We don't... Dude, this, this houseboat, I want to set the scene. This houseboat has a Christmas tree in it. <laughs> yeah. It has plants. Lights. 
A full kitchen. Decorations. Mul- multiple bathrooms. Yeah, how many bathrooms? Three? Two? Uh, two up here and then three upstairs, so five baths. Five baths. Jeez. Five full bathrooms. This house would be a sweet house if it wasn't even on a boat. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. You put it on a boat. Oh, Next level house. <laughs> you can fish off the porch. Dude, I'm going to steal this thing some night. I'm going to hotwire one of them tugboats, and I'm going to drag this thing to Southeast Alaska. They got, they got one right there that can push it. <laughs> oh, it's two stories. Yeah, two stories, right? Yeah, yeah. two stories. Uh, I'll probably leave the Christmas tree out on the deck there, but on the dock, because I don't want to really like add insult to injury. But other than that, I'm taking the whole damn deal. And top and to top it all off, it'll kind of rock you to sleep at night when those little when those shrimp boats or whatever boat passes, you get a little rocking motion, yeah. and it's it's nice, man. Oh, we have been like immersed in the culture. Yeah. Also, so that that that's a uh, Ronnie Collins, Ju- not a junior, right? Not a junior. Okay. And uh, Jean Paul, give give the proper uh, bouge. Jean Paul bourgeois, yeah. yes sir. Good French name. Yep, yep. You're learning. Uh, also from the state, correct? Give give a little background. Yeah, so I'm from Thibodeau, Louisiana, which is a little north of where we're at right now in Galliano, and I grew up um, in Assumption and Lafouche Parish, um, and uh, was kind of raised cooking my mom and dad were great cooks i kind of followed suit by their hip the whole time and when it when i had to decide what to do with my life the only thing that i kind of kept thinking about well i'm pretty good at cooking so i went to culinary school did culinary school and been in it ever since i've never had a job outside of the kitchen tell them what your first job was first job was boiling crawfish crab and shrimp at express (laughs) seafood in Thibodeau, louisiana that was my first job i was 15 years old and the thing I remember the most, of course, we bought a whole bunch of seafood, but you go home um, after that shift and your pores would be on fire with just with some of that powdered seasoning because when you put that in the water, it steams up and that gets all on your skin. But it's a good memory. That's a good memory. It's like one of those things that only happens if you do that job. And then you went up and chef. You went up to the big city and chef in New York for a long time. I did. Yeah, I was in New York from two thousand and nine to two thousand to. Uh, 2021 actually and, was it kind of uh, like if you can make it there you can make it anywhere kind of thing yeah i mean i think so i i was i'm i'm kind of a chameleon in, in the sense that i like i like the adaptability of being in new places and new york was one of those places that i'd never been i didn't have a job i didn't i didn't i i went without a job and um and in my head i was like well let me put myself in the most uncomfortable situation i can mm-hmm. and that's how i know i'm going to learn the learn the most and evolve the most and just change and so did you boil any crayfish up there we did yeah i i probably oh man i used to boil about 500 pounds a year for a certain event every year while i was up there uh lsu has a um lsu actually has an alumni kind of gathering there that i've done a couple times even though i'm not an lsu alum i'm a louisianian and boiled crawfish for them and different things i mean people love crawfish no matter where you're at in the country and especially love it if you have somebody authentically from louisiana doing it for them mm-hmm. and then uh bud i don't even know your name man gedry say it again gedry okay bud gedry 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 you know why you're here bud not really <laughs> 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 we only just met Bud yesterday. Because Bud's the man. That's Bud, why listen, he's here. Bud's, yeah. Probably my favorite person on the planet. He passed <laughs> up Heffelfinger. He passed up Dern. Blew way past Seth and Chester. 
<laughs> we met Bud yesterday because oh, Bud's going to give a dispatch about this. We met Bud yesterday because we went. This I didn't know this existed until yesterday. We went to Bud's private personal crawfish pond. Crawfish pond, like you know how some people have a garden that they take care of and everything. He has a crawfish pond that puts off how many pounds? Three thousand pounds a year. Two and acre, I, two acre pond. Okay, puts off three thousand pounds of crawfish. I went over there thinking that he was in the commercial crawfish business. No. He just eats them and gives them to his friends. Yeah, that's that's it. Like that's, a zucchini gardener. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Which is like it, the greatest thing on the planet. So we're gonna hear all about how to have a how to have your own crawfish pond. It's uh it's a hobby. It's just uh we enjoy eating it and it's something for me to do. I I was a commercial shrimp all my life. Oh you were? Yeah, that's what I did all my life. A big trawler working the Gulf. And when I got out of that, I had to find something to do. So you started carving ducks, I tying flies. carving decoys, tying Atlantic salmon flies, and raising crawfish. It's a renaissance man, if I've ever heard of Yeah, that. and you, you uh, won some competitions for decoy carving and then just quit. Yeah, it got boring. <laughs> It's just, I, I didn't, it wouldn't stimulate my mind enough. It was always the same routine, carving, painting, and uh, I've been in art all my life. That, it didn't do it for me. I had to find a different form of art to keep my mind stimulated. What are you on to right now? The flies. Still, tying, yeah, tying Atlantic salmon flies for display. Yes, everything is for display that I tie. Every fly I tie is one of a kind. It's framed. It's collectors that buy my work, and I tie on hundred-year-old hooks. The tinsels and silks I use date from around 1930. No, yeah, it's. Uh, I'm gonna have to show you. Just uh. Pull up my name on Google. Tell everybody how to, because people at home can do it on their phone right now. Spell Just it out. Go to Google and type in Bud Guidry. And you'll yeah, but no one's going to know how to spell Guidry. G-U-I-D-R-Y. Bud, B-U-D. There it is. Bud Guidry Bud salmon Guidry. flies. Classic Fly fishing flies. Images. If you get a sense of what he's getting from one of these, let me know. I don't want to make it feel awkward. Uh, so... Two hundred fifty to eighteen hundred dollars a fly. Really? Wow. Yeah. So you're like an artist. It depends and on a crawfish farmer. Like if I have a fly I've done and it's been published, the price is a lot higher. Um, I have work on display at the Smithsonian Institute. No. At our four national zoos. When you walk in front of the Cory Bustard exhibit, that fly that's in that big acrylic disc, that's mine. Really? I did work for the Smithsonian, yeah. Now, who yeah. are you? Man, when I steal this boat, <laughs> this guy's going to be tied up in it. I'm going to take this guy, well, take this guy with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, uh, ran, Ransom him off. Man. I, I enjoy the fly tying uh, because every piece I do is unique. Yeah. It's, it's not the same routine. So it stimulates my mind, keeps me at it. So I want I want to cover off on this too because I feel this is very like uh, this is kind of like a, a 
test of the culture here where we're at. Um, Ronnie, talk about how you and Bud, like, you've known Bud your whole life. Yeah, I've known Bud my whole life. I mean, because uh, everybody around here, you guys are all sort of related family. or been here a long yeah. time. Family. Yeah, we're family. And like, uh, unrelated. So, uh, <laughs> Bud's close cousins, uh, Mr. Chris and, and his son, Cade, me and Cade were best friends growing up. So when I first thing I did when I got home from school was I had hop in my four wheeler, cut across the pasture to Cade's house, and then we'd go find Bud, and Bud would bring us do all kind of cool stuff. We'd go, we'd go frogging, we'd go fishing, crawfishing, whatever. Depending on what was going on at that time frog of year, we were champion going. of the world, right here. He's right here. You're sitting next to him. You're the frog champion of the world. Actually, I'm. Oh yeah, Bud. I'll pod. Oh my God, Bud was the man <laughs> spotting, <laughs> spotting frogs. <laughs> But Bud would put me in. <laughs> All right, we're okay. We're gonna get back to the crawfish. We gotta do a couple things. We're gonna get back to the crawfish pond. We gotta cover off on a little. You just gotta hang tight. But comment if you feel like you need to comment. That's fine. We got a couple of news items we gotta go through. Uh, two little things. I don't like hacking on vegans, man, at all. It's not my thing to hack on vegans. God bless them. Yep. But this guy rolled in with an interesting picture where he's in Honolulu, and he sees a restaurant called Vegan City. It's called Vegan City Plant-Based Comfort Food. But above the bar is a big TV, and they're all watching Meat Eater. <laughs> so I thought it was cute. I want, I'd, love, now here's, I'd love to just ask why. Here's, here's another one. This is good. This is like this guy's talking about uh, the coolest vegan he knew. Um... When this guy was in school, they were at the University of Iowa. There's a class you can take at the University of Iowa. I would have taken the shit out of this class called the History and Culture of Hunting in America. The instructor had a friend who was, had been vegan, but made it their thing that they ate roadkill because it's like it's dead. It's dead by... Human cause would otherwise go to waste, and they would eat opossum, squirrel, raccoon, coyote, deer, didn't matter. Huh. Lived on roadkill. Back in college, I've eaten a little bit of roadkill. Oh, yeah. But not a vegan. Oh, a vegan. You guys ate roadkill because you eat anything that moves. Yeah, pretty much. My favorite vegetable (laughs) is boiled crabs. What's that? My favorite vegetable is boiled crabs. Yeah. Uh (laughs) I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, kind of a weird deal out of Pennsylvania right now. Seth, Seth's from Pennsylvania, so he's going to talk about this. Yeah. Do you want me to lay the groundwork, or you want to lay the yeah, groundwork? Yeah, lay the groundwork. Ah, man. Okay, as people know, as people know, I don't know if you know this or not, but it's interesting to know. Everybody's familiar with police have to do warrants. Yeah. Okay, like, for instance, right now, if a policeman is driving by, he can't just decide to come in here and see if we're in here doing illicit drugs, right? He can't be like, hey, I don't know. There's people in there. Maybe I'm going to barge in and see what they're doing. Yeah. And he can't sneak in here and hide behind the Christmas tree over there to see if someone does something bad because they need probable cause and all this. Game wardens in many states have long held like a special privilege where a game warden can go on to private property and do investigations, do stakeouts, sneak around, go to your tree stand, check your license, 
without probable cause, without any kind of warrant. Some fellers in Pennsylvania are bent out of shape. They got a hunting club, and they had some wardens come on to their hunting club and give them some citations. They're not challenging what the citations were about. They're challenging that that person, they got some libertarian attorney, and they're challenging that it's unconstitutional for a warden to have the ability to go onto private property without with do to do warrantless search. Yeah. Lay out some of the cultural implications here, Seth. Seth sounds thinks they sound whiny. Well, I I almost like I don't know. There's there's a whole there's like one very much one side of the story here. Um the side of the people who are not happy because they got tickets. Yeah. Yeah. Like it doesn't it doesn't say what they got tickets for. It does. You're wrong. On well it goes down it goes they down. They got it there's two citations. Hunting without a license. Oh, having must... a loaded gun in your vehicle. Oh, okay, I missed that part. Well, the hunting without a license is a big issue though. Yeah. So they're saying that dude had no right to come on our land anyway. Well, I guess, well, he did because it's law. That he's, well, no, he's, okay, yeah, yeah. They're, they're challenging his right yeah. to do this. I don't know. I, like, growing up in Pennsylvania, there's so many people that were anti-game commission, right? Oh, buddy. And... Typically, I'll, I'll, I won't say everyone, but I'd say 95% of those people were anti-game commission because they were doing illegal shit. Hmm. Mm. Hmm. Yeah. Strong word, Seth. Most of the time, a warden doesn't... The only anti-game commission person I know in Pennsylvania is related to you closely. Now, oddly enough, when you <laughs> <Yes>. just... <laughs> oddly enough, when you just said most people that don't like wardens here... It's because they were caught either doing something illegal or are they breaking the law. Yeah. Well, that might be the same reason people so sometimes it, are afraid of police. That may be the, the same, same all over. Yeah, I think, it, I think, yeah. Yeah, when we were kids driving around, if you saw a policeman, you turned the radio down and everything, and everybody sat up real straight and stuff. Yeah. You just felt like you were doing something bad. Yeah. But let me, let me give a couple more details. What it's called is open fields doctrine. Um. A game warden's ability to like, like for instance, if a game warden, we were talking to a game warden one time, and he was a. Uh, I'll bring this. This is an interesting story. He was explaining why he was leery about suppressors, because mm-hmm. he was saying, "I rely on the sound of gunshots." Yep. Then he went on to say, "It's hard for him to finish a night of bow hunting on a day off." He said, "Every time I'm in my tree stand." I'm sitting there, and around dark, I hear, and he's like, since depending on the timing and everything, I'm down out of my tree, and I'm heading that way. Yep. Now, a gunshot would not, like, you'd shoot a gun off for all manner of reasons. But he would would hear that and head off onto the neighbor's place, right? Open fields doctrine. High courts in New York, Montana, Oregon, Vermont, Washington State appeals courts have begun to strip wildlife agencies of these special powers. Arguing that 
the state constitutions grant greater protections to citizens. We got an email from a guy, a civil engineer in Pennsylvania, who just unrelated to this, a big, long, like a big, long, very well articulated email about what he feels has become a very aggressive, in his take, in his mind, a very aggressive approach to um, game wardening in his state. But again, he had some violations. Yeah. Yeah, it's just his side of the story. Yeah. The, the, the officer, I'm hesitant to read the letter because I'd have to go and get a letter from the officer about what happened on I this know. day. So it's, it's, it's kind of like a moot point, but he points to that there's a lot of tension. He feels there's an increasing amount of tension in Pennsylvania around enforcement approach and tactics. Yeah, and it, he went on to say on how he feels that hunting is going to go away in the state because of that. I don't think that that's probably true. I don't think that's true either. I think that's a far stretch. Um, but if a game warden wants to come on my property, if mm-hmm. he's like, if he's suspicious that something's going on, for me, I'd be like, by all means, go do what you have to do. I mean, you're not gonna like, you're not gonna find anything. All I'm gonna do is prove to you that there's like nothing for you to worry about here. Yeah, yeah, you know. And the game warden that they're talking about, the I don't know, I don't know if we want to mention his name, but I've. That guy's checked me two different times in turkey season. Had great encounters with him. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. That we had someone poaching turkeys on our property. Called the game commission. He showed up. That he, guy? He sat in our camp at the table that we'd all sat around. Wow. Um, Tell the big elk story. Yeah, this guy, speaking of gunshots, this same guy, there's a, a bull elk. He ended up scoring like 460, right around 460 something. That doesn't even make sense. I know. <laughs> Pennsylvania grows massive elk. Anyway, this guy, I we had trail cam pictures of that bull on our property. Um, he one night there, I think he was like suspicious of, of some elk poaching going on. Anyway, um, one night he went up close to our property just at night in September, um, and just sat up there in the dark, listening, listening. Had a listening post. And all of a sudden, just heard a gunshot. And went over there and found that it's actually a a kid that went to my high school, graduated, I think, a year or two ahead of me. Um, Had killed this bull and was cutting the antlers off of it when he showed up. No. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. On private property. Uh, Yeah, most likely, because all... It's all private around there. Caught him red-handed. Yeah. Yeah. So you've had a lot of adjacency and interactions to this individual, and it has not been your finding that he's coming around busting your balls unnecessarily. No. He's been nothing but help to us. Hmm. Plot thickens. So. Plot thickens. I I feel like, and I know, like, I don't know this guy real well. I just, I've talked to him, you know, a handful of times, and, all my interactions with him have been great. I feel like he's not going around harassing people for no reason. Mm-hmm. I feel like if he has probable cause or you know whatever he thinks something's going on, he's going to do something about it. Yep. So I don't know. 
So I think yeah, I think your take is these guys got a little chap ass because they got some tickets. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're obviously doing illegal shit, and they got caught doing it, so they're bitter about the game commission. Sounds like it. Thanks for the report. I, Seth. I don't think. Uh, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with a game warden coming on my on our like our family's property. You know, I always uh, that that's one of the things I always vacillate on, man. Is remember when uh when they had those uh they had some domestic terrorists and they wanted to get into their phone real bad. Yeah. And uh they couldn't get it took them forever. Apple wouldn't let them into the guy's phone. Yeah. The guy's wife's phone. And, I, and part of my mind's like, I don't know, man, if someone wanted to take a look at my phone, I'd just be like, here, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, you're be bored as shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just I don't I don't I don't know. I guess I'm just Playing devil's advocate a little bit, I have no problem. No, I'm with you. I, I see, but like I, you know, I, I see the civil. Yeah, I, I definitely see the civil liberty. The sorry, the civil liberties end of it. Yeah, but I also see that uh, that um, I don't know, man. I guess I'm comfortable with a, a distinction between between of someone's like a warden's right to roam across the landscape. I don't think they're coming into houses. And no. busting down doors, like their right to roam across the landscape, um, doing that sort of work feels different to me than then saying, okay, so then if that's true, police can just enter your home when they want for no reason. Yeah, like I, I just don't, I don't feel that there's a, the probability of a ton of confusion there. I'm curious about what the optics would be if they didn't have any citations drawn on like they did have a license they didn't have the gun would they still have the same opinion about the game warden coming on their property yeah they probably I, forgot yeah. about it very quickly i, yeah. I could see <laughs> i could see if a game warden was like had a strong feeling that for instance i'll, I'll put myself in this situation if, if, so, if a game warden thought i was doing something wrong on on, on my property and yeah. he was constantly harassing me sure but constantly not like not finding anything mm but still like constantly harassing me. Like first day, opening day of deer season, he like, at first light, he shows up my tree stand. Like I, I could see getting pretty irritated about that. Yeah, that's a good point. Nothing's turning up, but yeah. they're just making your life hell because of some unfounded suspicion. Yeah. I could see that being very frustrating. But I, I just, I've never experienced anything like that. I, I have a hard time, I have a hard time like believing that a lot of that goes on. Mm -hmm. If they're not finding anything, and they, you know, I th I feel like they're just going to move on to other shit. Yeah, try to go write some tickets somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like if if that would go through and they would not allow game wardens to go without a uh, a warrant, I feel like that'd be a huge loss for wildlife because I feel like a lot of people with private land would just take advantage. Figure that oh, I can make my own rules now. Yeah, game warden ain't coming over. Unless I guess I guess they get reported, but yeah. or dudes that hunt public land and start getting a hell of a lot more tickets. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They'd be like, dude, yeah, all the pressure's on us now. Yeah. Uh, okay, we got a couple chetiket. Are you? I will. I can you quickly tackle all three of these, Chester? Yes, I was actually coming up with a plan how to tackle them real quick. Okay. Um, so chetiket. Well, uh, let me tee them up. Okay. So this is the chetiket section. And we find out whether things are chethical or not. You like that new one? <laughs> I don't know who came up with that. Yeah, chethics. <laughs> yeah. Um, the first one, there's three of them here. First one's about your, your honey holes or your hunting and fishing spots. One guy 
um, was hunting with his ex-wife and his father-in-law, um, or he was hunting with his wife his at the time. His then wife. His then wife. And, and his then father-in-law. And then father-in-law. Um, took him out to his spot, and his wife shot a buck of a lifetime. And uh, he must not have liked his ex-father-in-law because he had to throw in there, my ex-father-in-law wounded a deer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I noticed that. Yeah, and that was a... Um... I learned a new word from my wife the other day. I, I think that that's called a microaggression. Yeah, just a little. He, <laughs> He's like, what, what, what? He he wounded one. I'm just telling you, he wounded one. Yeah, you know, but it's like it's like man, it's a little, it's a little it's jab. A little, jab. Yeah, yeah. A little, <laughs> little tiny jab. So the ex father in law wounded one, um, but it must have been a pretty good spot because four years later. Guy goes in the spot and there he sees his ex father in law. Well, you left out that they had a divorce. Yes. Well. Ex-father-in-law. Okay. Yeah. 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 Oh, so no, I guess that's implied. That paints the picture. Yeah. This this guy's in there hunting this <laughs> hunting this spot, and I know we've covered this before spots. And my take on this, and is real simple: if some dude shows you a spot, um, and then you divorce it, his daughter, especially a, a like a, a smaller spot. Well, just in regards to anything, like any spot situation. Like, it's always good to ask if you're going to go in there. That's, like, a, a very simple way. Yeah, to... here's the thing. Go on. D don't don't go on to number two, but I got something to say about number one. All of these things have a bunch of gray area there, too. Like, I don't know how big this spot is. It could be a giant public land spot. Um, I got two. Uh, you, you, go, on, go for it. You're right. I agree with you in general. Yep. If you have a spot, and you take your father-in-law out, and then you get a divorce, and he stops being your father-in-law, I feel the father-in-law needs to move on and find a new spot because the divorce ended that relationship. Sure. But I don't know the details yeah. of the divorce. Yeah. If this guy that wrote in was a philanderer, yep. and that behavior led to the divorce, and there were some other ugly factors involved in the divorce, this father-in-law might not even like hunting. Yeah. He's just doing anything he can. You ever see that movie In the Bedroom? Uh-uh. He's just doing everything. It's about lobster fishing. Uh-huh. But nice. I, I wouldn't have guessed that by the title. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a part of a lobster trap. Gotcha. In the Bedroom is part of lobster. Anyways, this father-in-law kills his wife's ex-husband. I kind of ruined the movie. It's in the end. But, uh, <laughs> spoiler alert. So it might be that he was sticking it to the guy, sh yeah. sticking it to him. Yeah, that's true. Over something that we don't know about. Yeah, but yeah. you don't. But here's the thing: in your position as the Chetiket man, you can't be bogged down by all the unknowns. Yes, and here's another lesson on that for this guy who took the father-in-law out. It sounds like he didn't quite really like him. If you're going to take someone out to your good hunting spot, make sure you really like them. Make sure they're like good buddy, you know, which can, you know, again, things can change. Things can change down the road, but just do your, do your best to, you know, have a good, good buddy. You know, I don't, you're a married man, Chester. Yeah. I've been married a hell of a lot longer than you. Uh, in that situation, it might not be that he could, it might not be that he could, uh, you know, you gotta be like, uh, there's a, there's some politics involved in being married, man. Yeah. She's like, well, how come you don't take my dad hunting? 
I don't like them. I mean, come on. Oh, I know what you're saying big time. Dude. Yeah, it might be yeah. like, is someone, you know, your wife asks you to do something, you just do yeah. it. Yeah. So That's why you have B and C spots. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I got just a spot for you. It's not where I hunt. <laughs> Put him in the gar hole. Yeah. Yeah. Put him yeah. in the gar hole. Put him in the gar hole. Bri- bring, him, bring him to the muck. Okay. <laughs> no, another one here. Ne- next, uh, whether or not, the next Chattica question. So this is a, a property thing. This guy bought 40 acres of land, wanted to have his own little chunk to hunt. Oh, no, 30 acres of land. Um, and The back 30. The back 30. Um, and... He is got a little confrontation, maybe, or not confrontation, but his neighbors have a deer stand set up right on the property line and a old ground blind set up right on the property line. He even mentions that it's potentially on their property <laughs> just a little bit, but he's not quite sure. And anyways, uh, and he's like, should I confront these guys? Is that wrong? Am I being wrong? Since they were there first, what should I do? We grew up on a property in Wisconsin that is pretty good hunting. A um, lot of deer, especially during big the... Big box, too. Big box. <laughs> um, running all over the place. Anyways, our neighbors definitely know that. And they set up right around the outside of our property. And it, it's not on our property, but it definitely is kind of like, I don't know, it's a little annoying, you sure, know, because sure. it's like if that guy saw that big buck walking <laughs> on our property line, just inside, would that guy be able to hold out and not shoot that deer? You know, it just depends on the person. But there's really nothing you can do there. They're, if they're on their property... um, you know, they, they have every right to set that blind up. I would recommend, if you have that situation, we don't have any any tree stands set up right on our property lines just to avoid that conflict, you know, potentially. So, But help this guy out uh, with this question. I know that he does. He probably knows that he doesn't have any authority to make them move, but he's trying to figure out how should I feel about them. Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, that that's like... Depends on what kind of people they are, too. Like, if he gets to know his neighbors and they're kind of shysty, like, if they could shoot a deer, then I would feel a little worried and, you know, I... Yeah, I think you should go talk to him. Does it, like, does it say that he knows them? Well, it's his neighbors. He he says, should I confront them about it? Should I suck it up mm. and avoid it or bring it up to them? And I think if they're your neighbors, you might as well go over there and have a chat with them because you're living right next to them I, regardless. I would go over there and be like, listen, I see you have a stand close to the property line. Does he have a stand close to there too? It, no, he's, he's, it sounds like he's staying oh, okay. off the property lines. I was going to say, I'd go over there and be like, listen, if you like, if we communicate a little bit, you let me know when you're hunting that stand. I know it's close to the property line. If you know, let me know when you're hunting that. I'll hunt a different spot or vice versa. Mm-hmm. Tell you what, I think maybe I don't know. I'd have to know a little more about the neighbors. You could also go over there and propose a solution. You could say, you know what? Really, I could put a stand up, and we could sit back to back, right? Yeah. You looking in your place, me looking in my place. Eh, th- no one really wants that. Would you want to agree to a little gentleman's agreement that uh, 
we don't put stands within 100 yards of that border. I'll honor that. Yeah. You honor that? Like a little co-op. Yeah. I like that. Now, I know here's, I don't want to tell you, I don't want to say where this is because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but I know some folks with a, with a property in Texas. Low fence. This is not a high fence property. And they have a very tightly managed deer program on their property. And they've had a lot of problems with these neighbors have a parcel that borders theirs. And they don't have a tightly managed deer program. And they, all their stands were on the edge because they knew that they had they were that they had big box. Um they eventually made a they eventually put a deer fence on one edge of their property. Huh. I had a buddy do the same thing. Put a deer proof fence just on one Hmm. It got so tense between them and the neighbors, and I know, and I know from just from hearing from the people I know's perspective that they did share with the neighbors here, like here's what we're trying to accomplish here with like a deer management program. Um, you know, let's try to work together on it. Um, but they just felt they're being a little bit taken advantage of, and that was their solution. Interesting. Huh. I, I had a buddy, and uh, they have a ranch over in the King's Ranch in Texas, and mm-hmm. they had the same issue. Their, their neighbor uh, on the bordering side w- was putting up stands and uh, guiding hunts to shoot the bucks coming off of the uh, bow-only ranch. So they were real strict on their management. You know, certain only certain 150-plus-inch deer being shot with a bow, and that guy was putting a hunter, a different hunter, every day in that stand on the border, and they did the same thing. They put up a deer fence and cut them off. Put the gabosh on that, huh? Mm-hmm. Just, a, just a high game fence on one side of the border just to keep those deer from going to that dude's Going place. to that guy and him just killing them all. Yeah. Okay, Chetiket number three. Chetiket number three. This guy lives in California's Sacramento Valley between two mountain ranges. He says it's, let's just say it's not San Francisco. Bear hunting was outlawed 10 years ago with dogs you can't run bears with dogs out there anymore um and this guy was out bear hunting one day and he ran across a couple pickup trucks with some guys with dogs and uh the guy said they made it clear that they weren't hunting they weren't after bears with these dogs but sounds like they were probably clearly houndsmen training uh, dogs training dogs which i i would have to do some research on this like i don't know what the laws are for running dogs you know for training purposes during bear season in california it sounds like there could be some illegal activity going on there i I, already but i'm not 100 percent sure on that anyways these guys are you know let their hounds out and this other guy's trying to bear hunt legally um and you know dog it's kind of obviously blowing his hunt because the dogs are barking three ridges over. Um, he he just feels, you know, that it's not not right or not ethical to be doing that during bear season. Um, he, he says he hates to report people, but laws are laws. Laws are laws, and I don't buy BS. Um, so it sounds like this guy thought these guys were running bears is what, what I gather from this, which... Mm-hmm obviously is illegal so 
I mean, I'd have to just research this one more because I don't know. Can you run? Do you think you could run dogs during bear season just for training purposes? Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Uh, if it is that you can, it brings up this question that we've had people write in about before. Like, remember when Kevin Murphy got harassed by archery deer hunters? Yeah. For hunting squirrels? Yeah. Because they felt that their activity, they felt that archery hunting deer, that their archery hunting of deer was more important than his hunting of squirrels. He was actually in Michigan. So he got harassed by bow hunters who were mad that he had the audacity to be out hunting squirrels during the whitetail rut. Yeah. And he thought that was some bullshit. Yeah. I mean, every, everybody has right, right to do legal things to use the landscape. Like if they're, if they are following the law, do you not go do certain things because other people are doing certain things? I'll point out that, um, just recently when I was home visiting my mom, I was taking the kids out squirrel hunting and I was aware and cognizant of the fact that it was firearm deer and didn't want to like go into places where a truck was parked because some guy was hunting deer and I felt like me coming through with all my kids hunting squirrels would have been a little, I don't know, felt a little rude to me. Yeah. Yeah. So I would, I kind of like, stuck to stuff real close to the road and whatnot because i don't want to blow some dude's deer hunt was i allowed to do it sure yeah i think communication like if these guys are legal and able to run dogs during during bear season i think um communication would be huge there so these bear these you know houndsmen aren't ruining this guy's bear hunt try and send them another way and the actual bear hunter head the other way but yeah Got to know a little more about what's going on. Spring is a great time to do something with your family. Do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside. Planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing. Taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to PolicyGenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's PolicyGenius.com. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting yeah i apply for everything everywhere it's dawning you have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply well this is a thing of the past now onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters this tool helps organize the data that matters makes comparing hunt options easy and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics 
rather than gut feelings. On X Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder, so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt Elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame, wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. A couple more things on hound hunting because you know the whole Vermont thing, right? Like we covered that dude in Vermont. Yep. I think he's going to come on the show. I think we're working on it. The Goldshaw Farm dude. Yep. And he made a very good YouTube video. I saw that. Like yeah. a rebuttal. We came after him pretty hard. Yep. And he made a whole YouTube rebuttal. The guy that's driving this petition to end hound hunting or change hound hunting. Someone wrote in there like a little bit of the story that, that I didn't know about is there was this very publicized case from 2019 in Vermont about the tension between hound hunters and the non-hunting public. A there, there, This thing got a ton of attention where a pack of uh, a hound hunters' dogs apparently attacked this couple out walking in the woods and attacked their dog pretty good. And it went on a long time. The people got bit. Their dog got bit, and that caused a lot of uh, consternation about to what degree are these hounds under control? Because these people, it sounds like, I don't fully understand it. It sounds like this attack on them and their dogs went on for like 90 minutes. Wow. Jeez. In the end, the hound hunter walked away with five points. I don't know what the, how the point system works. Walked away with five points on his license and a couple hundred bucks in a fine and people are pointing out that if you were in a county park if you were in a city park and your dog came up and bit some people and attacked a dog for 90 minutes your dog be euthanized but people felt that this dude walked with a slap on the wrist yeah and certainly did not have his dogs under any kind of control for them to be able to chase these people around for 90 minutes that is bizarre yeah again man two sides of the story i i think 
man, I love hound hunting. Absolutely love it. I want hounds of my own someday. Um, there's always conflicts with hound hunters and the general public. I just need to be like very responsible about it. Yeah. I think it would end a lot of problems. Here's another thing that just happened in Vermont. Kind of the other side of the coin. You know, we always talk about the right to hunt laws. Yep. And whatever happens. Well, some hound hunters were out. Uh, Groton State Forest. Okay. They're, they're tracking a black bear. And the bear goes on to private property. Okay. The hunters legally enter the woods from Buzzy's Road, it's called. And they retrieve their hounds. So they're, in, they're within law because they go to get their dogs, but don't kill the bear out of the tree. Leave the bear in the tree, get their, ha- their dogs. Get back to their truck, and there's two ladies there letting all the air out of their tires. Then one of these ladies releases a German shepherd, her, lets her German shepherd out, which then gets into a fight with the bear hunter's hound and beats the, the hound dog up bad enough where it needed veterinarian care. The women got fined, found guilty in court. The bear hunters were acting lawfully. She was acting unlawfully. That sounds legit to me. She shouldn't have turned those dogs loose, that shepherd. She shouldn't let the air out of their tires. Well, yeah. no. I mean, if if the hunters were following the law, she had no right to do what she did. Yeah. I could see where the courts, I mean, we're all sitting here and probably we'll all agree she was wrong. I think so. Yeah, I don't know about that state, but in some states, they the, the houndsman probably could have legally killed her dog. Hmm. Yeah. That, that's got to be some kind of form of animal cruelty, too, to make your dog attack somebody else's dog. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I have my property in Mississippi where we deer hunt. We still hunt only. But we have neighbors that hound hunt. Yep. It's a constant problem. You guys get a lot of disputes? Uh, I tried to avoid it, but there were others around us that it's gotten serious, you know, really serious yeah. threats. Um, I can be sitting at camp and at midnight, you hear a bunch of hounds chasing the deer on my property. Mm. They'll run their dogs in the evening and the dogs will run off and the hunters don't retrieve their their hounds. Yeah. So the dogs just stay in the woods all night long chasing deer all around my property. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Yeah. It's a hard thing to swallow when you know you're dedicated to still hunting, you you try to manage your property for still hunting and you got and look it's hounds. We see them in the morning with their collars. They come to the we feed them. You can tell some of them are starving. They all have collars with the owners' names on them. Um, it's a constant. It doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. It's constant. If I was a hound hunter, I'd take a two-pronged approach, man. I would be fighting like, like fighting like hell, to protect my rights as a hound hunter, and I would be fighting like hell to like to have a buttoned-up program and yeah. avoid conflict with other hunters. Yeah. You know, you have to understand a dog, he doesn't know what a fence line is. 
he can't read a keep out sign. Yeah. I mean, it's in his nature to run. He'll cross property lines and, and I can understand a dog running five, 10 miles. It's hard for a man on foot to keep up with a dog running through hilly territory. So I can, I can deal with the, uh, occasional hound running around my place at night, but it's constant. It doesn't stop. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a problem. What's the benefit it, of of running hounds aside from actually like what what do they get out of it besides the exhilaration of actually owning hounds and hearing that and, and chasing? In a lot hunt? of areas, that's the only way to effectively hunt bears. Yeah. Bader hounds, lions, mountain lions. I mean, it's like a traditional use practice, man. Yeah. You go. I mean, people were people were. You know, like this is a little known thing. You go back, like Daniel Boone. Okay, that's how they hunted bears. Yeah, they're, they're, and if you go read it, even up up into the eighteen hundreds, like the the Cherokee, Choctaw. I mean, they hunted bears with dogs. Going back, it's a, it's a traditional use practice. Yeah, and I'm asking the question to somebody who has very little insight into hound hunting like this is all very new information to me so it's been kind of really interesting to hear this conversation go on because yeah we we used to hunt rabbits we used to hunt rabbits with beagles sure you know well here's the thing people hunt yeah and and it's always like it's always you know so you got people that do one thing i feel like i've told this story a hundred times i'm not gonna tell it again People tend to think that what they've always done is dead on balls right and that what everybody else does is bad. So you got guys that hunt birds with dogs and that's that's the kind of stuff you make paintings about and hang in your house. But the guy that hunts something else with a dog, that's the savage. Mm. You know, it's like you shouldn't be able to trap because what if something happens to the dog that I use to kill stuff that I like to kill? Mm. It just, you know, people are, there's a ton of tribalism. There's a ton of tribalism. And before, like, before I had such a, before I had the luxury of being around, traveling around throughout the country so much and being exposed to all the different hunting cultures that exist in the country, I was guilty of the same stuff. I was like, what I do is very right. I, you know, I, we hunt deer the right way and everyone else does it the wrong way. It's just this very like provincial attitude. I think it's got a lot to do with what you were raised into. Sure. Through generations, you know, the grandparents brought the kids out hunting a certain particular way. The grandkids learn how to hunt that way. And it's a mindset that this is the way to do it. I think the only, like, when when weighing all these things out, I have found, and this is after, this is where I've arrived after spending um, many, many, many days and hours, like, sort of, like, looking at these controversies. Um, I feel that there's two things that, that, there's, like, two sort of aspects of all the stuff that need to be considered. 
I put an enormous amount of weight on traditional use practices. And I put a lot of weight on resource allocation. Meaning, if you could come and say that a certain activity, like hound hunting for bears, is as conducted, is detrimental to black bear populations in the long term, like you're on an unsustainable path, uh, then that's a conversation that needs to be had. How are you going to re- how are you going to rectify that? So you have a traditional use practice like hound hunting with bears. It's something that people have always done. So we're going to honor that traditional use up to the point where someone can look and say you're on a bad path from sustainability. Yeah. And the way that's usually the way that's usually handled is through resource allocations. Like what 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 part of the pool of black bear tags are going to go to that user group um with emerging technologies i have a different attitude about it because emerging technologies haven't haven't yet entered traditional use practice so if someone's going to come and make the case that like like using thermal night vision stuff um what are the implications for game management i think that that's a much more fair question to ask because it's an emerging technology without a culture built around it it's not a traditional use practice Let's weigh it on its merits as it emerges rather than going back and telling people that have been involved in some activity for 300 years that we've now decided that what they've been doing for 300 years sustainably is no good anymore. Agreed. You know, I mean, it's just, it's like one approach of many, but it's kind of how I tend to look at stuff. I want to talk about this damn crayfish pond though. I want to talk about it too because you said it was yours now. So <laughs> <laughs> okay, lay out like like uh lay out for me um how one like the process of making a personal crawfish pond. I'm gonna try to say crawfish out of deference. Uh, here. bulldozing an excavator in five days. I was pumping water into it. So you dug that hole. Was it knee deep? Uh, what we did, we brought in an excavator and dug a, a key set. About six feet down. What's that word? Uh, we dug about six feet down, a bucket wide, to create, to break the soil, to cut any avenues that the water could seep through. Because here we have a lot of uh, the type of soil we have. You have a, you, re, you run into a lot of veins of water. I see. Running just a few feet deep. So we got to break that. We have to cut that. So we cut a keyway, six, eight feet deep, a bucket wide, the dimensions of the pond you're going to build. Okay. Yeah, the perimeter. You keyway the whole perimeter. All, be, in yards, tell people what the dimensions of this crawfish pond are. It's two acres. It's 500, 525 feet long, 150 foot wide. Okay. Um. So we build a keyway. You're just digging and you and you swinging the bucket around and dumping it right back. You're dumping the dirt right back into the keyway. You just want to break that. If there's any channels, that water's running. Okay. Because you're gonna lose water. Then a bulldozer comes in, removes about a foot of topsoil where all the grass is growing. Yep. You gotta get that out of the way. Then you just keep pushing dirt to build your levees. You can't have any grass. That's why you remove that topsoil. 
You can't put that grass in your levee because then the grass decays and it'll form little channels. Oh, really? That the water could start seeping through and it'll lead away your levee. So you get rid of the grass and you start pushing dirt with the bulldozer, build your levee, and crank up your pump and fill it. And uh, I built the pond in five days. I filled it. I waited a week, and then I dumped crawfish plant in it. One week after I filled it with water. But how'd you get the rice going in there? I had to wait the following spring. So you put crawfish in before you started even growing rice? Yes, because I had to get crawfish into the, to drill into the ground. That was my crop for the Explain next. that. Uh, what we do around. Like the, how their life cycle works. In May, I drain my pond in May, and I force, I force them. I pull the plug. In 12 hours, I, I drain all the water out of the pond. Well, a crawfish's instinct to survive is to drill into the ground. So when I, when they feel that water dropping, they start drilling. And they drill all on the inside the levee. They drill into the ground. And then I leave the pond dry all summer. I cut the grass. Uh, around mid-September, I plant my rice seed. So the pond, see, I, I'm confused now. Why do you why do you need the crawfish to drill into the ground? Because they go into the ground and they've they've been bred. They have eggs in them. They go into the ground and they spend two three months in the ground. Yeah. Then when the females come out, they're carrying babies under their tail. And when I fill the pond, they start coming out. Uh, they feel that way. Let's, <laughs> let's let's build a timeline. So like, Ronnie's ra he's raising his hand. Go ahead, Ronnie. Okay, yeah. So so what the whole point of the crawfish pond, the flooding and the draining, is to is to uh, simulate the river. So naturally occurring, the river would flood in the spring, and the crawfish would come out their holes. And then when the river would go back low again, the crawfish would would drill. So you're, you're, so, you're imitating so part of their the life cycle and sort of life history is to deal with this flood, the, the flooding and drain. water, yeah. yeah, dry periods and and then we can I got you. we can artificially control. So you're that, mimicking the natural cycle of yeah, the flood, yeah, in and, a way. Yeah. Yes. So so when, uh, what what month do you drain? I drain my pond in May. In May, so they breed prior to that. They're breeding all summer. I got crawfish that are drilling right now. And the reason they're drilling is because they came out of their holes two months ago, released their babies, yep. they bred, and it's time to go back in the ground to, to, to go through that life cycle of having babies. So they're, they're bred in the... All right. So you drain in May. Yeah. They, they, they start to drill, and they're bred already. They, they drill before I drain the pond. Okay. While the pond is full of water, you'll see. They'll, they're, so they're drilling prior to May. Yeah, you start seeing chimneys all and around. And then you drain, and it's all spring. And like, when do you start to fill the pond again? September. September. So all summer, the pond's dry. The pond's dry. I'm and, they're, and they're just down in the mud. They're down in the ground. Yeah. Okay, hold on a minute now. So, Go on. And then in that time period, that's when you plant your rice. Yes. While it's dry. Well, I plant. While my pond's dry, 
I plant my rice. When the rice gets about 18 inches high, I start flirting. But you, you said they breed all summer long. Yeah. So they, they, while I'm fishing, the, the crawfish are breeding. Underground. Underground. No, and the pond. They breed. You said the pond's got no water in it. Yeah, during the summer. And up up until so me. They're, they're not breed, they're not breeding in the hole. In the hole, they're actually almost like hibernating. Yeah. They're, but how are they breeding all summer if there's no water in the <laughs> damn no, pond? The, there's think. water up until me. So March, what do you call the summer? March. I, I think I think Bud just had a, had a, a, a tongue tied. Yeah. He meant to say it's, they, it's they, really breed, the spring. they breed. They breed when when there's water, and once you drain the pond, they're gonna hibernate and they're gonna just incubate those eggs and hibernate. In the mud, and okay. then when I fill the pond again, and they, they come out the, the ground with the babies under yeah. their tail. Yeah, once they fill, once the water table comes back up, the crawfish say, "Oh, it's time to get out." Time so to get they out. come out, and then they release their eggs. So yeah, they, they breed in the spring, and then once the water t- table drops, they drill, incubate those babies, staying in their hole. Water comes back up, they come out, and they spill their. their in the dry time, the the rice gets gets planted. Yeah, September it starts to grow. Yeah. Right. When, September, you flood again. When it gets about eight, ten inches high, I start flooding. Okay. And I follow the rice. Oh. And then, and then yeah. they they come out, release their eggs. Correct. And then that's when the life cycle. And then they and then ninety again. days from the time they come out and they release the babies, uh, biologists they figure about ninety days for baby crawfish to reach maturity. To be able to harvest it. And then all winter long, they're in there feeding on the rice? Well, the babies actually feed on the microorganisms that grow the algae, that grow on the rice stalks, and they'll feed on that as long as possible. When that food source is depleted, then they'll start eating vegetation like rice and whatever other grass is growing in there. Gotcha. Uh, uh, Vegetation is... Not a crawfish's main diet. They'll they'll feed on tiny organisms or whatever. If you pull one of those rice stalks out, you'll see it's uh it's all full of algae and that's what they're feeding on. Gotcha. This time of the year. Yeah, and being that the ponds are so shallow, if you I mean you theoretically could keep it flooded longer, but the water just gets so hot, you'll start Killing your crawfish. You just started losing mm-hmm. your crawfish. Oh. But but could attest. One time we, we we ran in my pond. We had what kept the water till what mid June, late yeah. June. And when Bud went to pull the plug, he said that water's hot. Yeah. It's, oh, <laughs> yeah. Listen, at this time of the year, I don't I don't even I don't hardly ever run my pump. You gotta have a lot of oxygen. I test my oxygen levels. Um, the water's cold, so it holds oxygen. Yep. In the spring, when that water's gonna start warming up, I gotta pump every day oh. to to keep my oxygen levels above four or five. It's or your crawfish are gonna die, or you'll see them crawling out. Trying you'll to split. At, you'll yeah. go at night, right after dark, and they'll be all along the water's edge crawling out. Yeah, they'll, they'll be bailing out to the to the to the water source that you pump into the pond. Got we have you. these. Uh, there's a. So they know uh, things are getting hard. Yeah, uh, there, there's, yeah. There's a large drainage canal that runs in the back of our property. We call it the 40 acre canal. And then, uh, like Bud and myself, we we on our properties, you dig a, a large ditch going all the way to the front, and then that's what you use to get your water into your pond. Got you. 
Okay, I got uh, I got more questions, but two have to do with this whole drain cycle deal. Do you have to drain it to plant rice? You can't yes. plant, you, so you can't sow rice in a in in eighteen inches of water. No, but I have a friend across the bay that has a pond. He told me he throws his rice seed in three or four inches of water. But it wouldn't work in eighteen inches of water. No. Okay, so there's that, and then let's say. You never drained your pond, but you kept it at a stable 18 inches year round. It'd go to hell, right? Most likely. Like the crayfish production would go to hell. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, I used, so the, the pond, I, one of the ponds I had was a 100 acre one, and it was actually more of a swampier style pond. It was a pond that was not well taken care of. It was just left to, to be full and flooded. They did have crawfish in it, but it was yeah, it was not nearly as productive as yeah. say Bud's pond because the the fish get in it to it, and once the fit the the small goggleyes and uh, the patasas the perch they um they'll deplete they'll eat all your, your the baby crawfish they'll deplete your baby crawfish stock and in that oh, case okay. also we the bullfrogs took in and the bullfrogs were eating all the crawfish. You could ask Bud in, in that pond. That pond hadn't had no one had done any kind of anything to it in about five years when we took it over, and there were so many bullfrogs in there that we could literally could not make crawfish. And when I say bullfrogs, I'm talking yeah, twenty six inch eight plus no, jeez monsters. The first time we decided to go frogging in this pond, Bud Bud got there first, and he was texting <laughs> me. He says, "Man." The frogs are so big in here, they're not going to fit in the case of my truck. <laughs> 75 frogs filled you up a 70-quart ice chest. You couldn't catch them with your hand. Hey, you, you, couldn't, you couldn't grab them. They were, you couldn't wrap your hand around them to catch them. We'd have to whack them with, with a paddle. paddle. Yeah, Jeez. you couldn't go and grab one of those frogs. And the cool thing about frogs, though, when you hit them with a paddle and knock them out, they have a, a mechanism that they, they inflate their their lungs or some some kind yeah, of air bladder to make them look like badasses. Yeah, they, they roll over and they're they just floating there. So you just grab them, throw them over your shoulder. Uh, watch this. My pond, I flood in September <laughs> and I drain it in me. That short amount of time when I drain that pond, you would not believe the stuff that's gr- that's living and growing in there. Fish. I'm talking about brim big enough to eat. Bluegill, eels, uh, garfish, and I don't plant any of that in there. Just finds its way in there. Yeah, it's, it's always I, I, it's always exhilarating when you pick up a trap and they got a big cong in there, which is which is what it's like. A, it's like an eel, but it's got little legs. It's it's like actually I would say a giant salamander. They're about, uh, yeah. they're about oh, two, like three a, feet like long. old lasagna sides, like a hellbender. You know what a hellbender is? No, I'm not sure what a hellbender is. Yeah, we it's call sort of like a hellbender, yeah. yeah we, sort of like we call that, them but So how does that stuff get in there? I have no idea. The, the, and every year when I drain that pond, you would not believe what's in there. The fish, I think, come in through <laughs> the pumps. <laughs> the, like the, the brim and bullfrogs, we catch them in the trap. Really? Uh, yeah, you pick up the traps, they're in there. Um, oh, go ahead. I, you got, I want you to explain the harvest process now. Because you're talking about the trap, so it's a good segue into the harvest process. Yeah, well, we <laughs> real simple. We harvest them and eat them. <laughs> no, but talk. You, you just you just, you trap them out of the pond. Yeah, I got uh, pyramid traps that we use. We use uh, artificial bait pellets. Yep. Uh, for bait, because we we're not big on that. Uh, a lot of 
a lot of crawfish fishermen use fish. Uh, Manhattan or pogies for bait. One of the reasons I built my pond, my wife wouldn't eat crawfish that, and you can smell it. You can tell crawfish that's, that's been fish used for bait. And we didn't like that. So one of the reasons I built my pond, we use a pellet form for bait. Crawfish are clean. Uh, your crawfish or bass, we enjoy more about that first month. The, the meat is, has a sweetness to it. Later on, when the water starts warming up, the flesh changes. Mm -hmm. uh, it even tastes different. It, the texture and as your crawfish get older. When the crawfish are real young, that's when they're the best. So I run the traps every every day and my wife and I eat what we can and we give the rest away to So family. you give them away all bagged up. You don't make your neighbors and friends come and pull their own traps. Uh, a lot of them, a lot, some of them, like Ronnie likes to bring his son. Okay. So I'll tell Ronnie, yeah, y'all come. It, it's more of a, it's to have a, an outing with friends, you know, Jump in the boat, let's go, and we'll go run the traps, and whatever crawfish we pick up, I give it to them. It's hmm. like the kids, to bring kids. Man, you wouldn't believe how many kids I've had in that pond. And they, they I, I mean, you made their month. You know, you bring two, three, uh, four, five-year-olds in there, and it's all new to them. And, uh, I mean, just see the smile on their faces and... Their eyes lit up, watching, picking up all them crawfish. No, that's, that's good fun. That's my thing. I, I mean, I love doing that. So, can I play a little, just a little bit of antagonist and kind of in this conversation? No. Can I? Come on. Oh, are you going to say something bad no. about having a crawfish pond? So, what Bud does in this small, in this small town community, and this is what we're at. This is a community gathering place that allows people to get this wonderful resource of Louisiana. And I, and I love that about this pond. But what I want to actually ask Bud about in, in the crew here is about commercial rice field fishermen out west who have hundreds and thousands of acres of crawfish ponds, right? You know that yeah. for a fact. And they, yeah. make, they, make a, they make a great living. And in fact, Ronnie said uh, the other day is that maybe the main source of their income is off that commercial fishing and rice just pays the bills, right? Then you take the old school fishermen in the Chafalai Basin and the spillways that are, that are fishing for crawfish, wild Chafalai Basin crawfish. That pillow pillow go, trap fishing. That, yeah, that go through the natural life cycle of the swamp and its feet and has no pumps going in and out of it. They're using bait and so Their big gripe is that the rice field farming crawfish is killing their, killing their business because the majority of people buy from the rice fields now because of what a lot of what mm. Bud just said. Because they taste the damn good. Taste different, the cleanliness from the thing. Now, a lot of people will say, well, what's the difference between farming duck and wild duck? You get a different, cleaner, more mild, mellow yeah. taste out of farm-raised mm. duck than wild duck. And then... In the same sense, so, so like what starts do we, to make its own gravy, don't it? Yeah. yeah. So I what, know about so that. I didn't know about this kind of thing. So what are we? Did you go walking in my pond? Yeah. It's hard, like yeah. It's hard. The floor, 
So I guess I guess my whole thing is is that mm-hmm. his his pond is a different beast because it's it's something that he does as a hobby. It's not a commercial thing. It doesn't make money. It's a community. Well, it's, it's, thing. Yeah, it's the difference between a garden. Yep. And an industrialized farm landscape. Exactly. Which, and I'm not condemning that. I'm just no. saying there's a big difference between a garden and an industrialized. Yep. And so landscape. you talk to these um, basin crawfish, these spillway crawfishermen who the are wild, by the wild, the, the, the wild crawfish guys. Crawfish. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> wild crawfish guys. And they're saying, well, what about us? Because uh, these guys out west have thousands of acres of controlled farmland that they're pumping water in and out, planting natural seed. And then 90% of the Louisianians and all over the country now where you can get, you can get crawfish express shipped to you the next day are all crawfish. Are all, or oh, rice field crawfish, and these spillway guys are like, well, shit, our commercial fisheries are going down the drain because no, we can't harvest near as much as the as the rice fields. Yeah, so you know what? It's, it's all about hmm. this because... And by when, that, you made, you made the little uh, money symbol. When yeah. the rice fields start producing, because it's, it's, it's like it's going to surge for about a month. The price starts dropping, and the price drops. Yeah, like I, right I, now, every year the crawfish start at about six dollars a pound. Here, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I find, find when it's going to crack up in well, the spring, the thing with the it's sp- going to drop to under a dollar. Huh? Yeah. When the rice fields are going to start putting it out, yeah, yeah. But they're putting out so much volume that they can sell it for under dollars. They're still bringing in. Bringing a bunch uh, of money. The thing, the yeah. uh, and I think too, and then the chafalaya guys are killing. Know about this. The chuffalot guys are killing themselves working. <laughs> Trying to catch the wild ones and not, yeah, getting, yeah. not getting a good price and for they're not, they're not getting any money for and, them. And, a lot of pe- and you're going to hear people say, no doubt, is that there's a difference in flavor, size, shell Absolutely. consistency between. And there, there are trains of thoughts. I say wild crawfish, now to Bud's point, using that pellet, not using decaying fish matter and pogey, that's going to change the the dynamic of what that crawfish tastes like but i wouldn't say it it like buying buying spillway crawfish is a bad thing and they're going to taste bad you just have to do a little bit more work to purge them to clean them to make yeah. sure they're nice and rinsed so that they do taste good because there is something about that wildness personally that does make that crawfish its own thing i'm not going to say more special or a, less yeah, yeah. actually but, it's a different they have a different flavor, uniqueness yeah. to, Personally, to I, where they come from. I, I, I love crawfish from the Chafalaya tastes different than the crawfish I raise in my pond. Yeah. I personally love spillway crawfish. Like I, I like yeah. I like the change up, you know, because a lot of times you're gonna get your your, your rice pond crawfish first because the, the you know the river hasn't done its thing yet. These spillway crawfish aren't aren't out there because so your rice crawfish pond is gonna come out first. That's your six dollar pound crawfish that you're getting right now in, in the yeah. winter time. You're not gonna get spillway crawfish in the winter time. And I find that when the spillway kicks what up, what the hell that, is a spillway? It's where the Mississippi the River, when, when, it, when it comes, up, or the Chafalaya, when 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 the, when the river comes up, it it, it there's some overflows. Oh, okay. over. and gotcha. it, and it, it overflows. Well, listen, where you were hunting by your bike, you weren't it. far yeah. from it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it floods the swamps. I mean, yeah, so it floods the, it's yeah. the, the, the natural. You're talking about swamp crawfish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So That's so when the spillway crawfish, when I think of a spillway, I think of the. Uh, in the middle of a beaver dam, they make a spillway. <laughs> no, so, I, I, you know, they leave. They don't make it. They yeah. leave it there. They uh, leave it unbuilt. Go on. So, uh, uh, so I find like when, actually when the spillway crawfish kick in, that's actually what actually does bring the price down, which which it, mm-hmm. it kind of sucks for the spillway guys because yeah, they don't get that six dollar a pound crawfish to sell. They are selling at 
three dollars a pound. When they when the, when the spillway comes in, that price is going to drop to about three dollars. Yeah. Because then the original dudes are kicking in. There, well, there's, uh, there, so, and they're, they're, there's and, so much crawfish coming out yeah. of rice farms and too. The rice farmers crawfish just it's more and more and more. Uh, the warmer it gets, the more yeah. they catch it. People search out spillway crawfish. Yeah, I'll because for, they know I'll they can always get rice field crawfish. They yeah. search out the spillway like they, side they, of the road. They they're like, like spillway I, crawfish here. Dude, what yeah. a buzz, like what a buzz kill, <laughs> man! Listen, if John Paul, if you know crawfish, <laughs> he buzz killed me yesterday. And he buzz killed me with the same I'm just, thing. I'm just trying to drop a little, Listen, drop a little favorite, knowledge here. Like you know, it's great knowledge. My favorite thing on the planet right now is boudin. Yeah. <laughs> Ronnie turns me on to like gas station boudin, yeah. where he going to the gas station to get boudin wrapped up. Boudin is like a a, a rice. Here we go. This is all information. This is all next level cultural information people need. Okay. Give me an unbiased what boudin is. Boudin is a rice sausage t- traditionally made with pork, rice, and pork livers. Okay. Period. Ronnie, these guys are always walking around in the morning. When I met Ronnie last summer, we were down here spearfishing, and everyone's walking around in the morning where you might be eating a breakfast burrito or a, <laughs> or a bacon sausage and egg thing. Instead, you're walking around with a but sausage wrapped <laughs> up in tinfoil. <laughs> like a, a, a soft sausage wrapped in tinfoil made out of like meat and rice. And that's what you eat in the morning. It's oh, delicious. It's good. And you put some hot sauce on it. And I'm going to rig up a thing when I move down here and start my restaurant called, I'm going to start a restaurant called The Real Cajun. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm going to have a thing that sits, I was explaining this yesterday. It's going to be a reservoir of hot sauce that bolts to the top of the truck. <laughs> with a drip line that comes down and it hangs right by your steering wheel and it's got a little squeeze bulb on it. Like the thing you use to prime gas in your boat. And oh as you're God. eating your boudin driving around, you can just, because <laughs> you only need each drop. You only get a bite. Cause yeah. it's a, so you gotta like see, you can't season the whole damn thing. You got to season each bite. So with that hose coming down full of hot sauce, take a bite, <laughs> <laughs> with that reservoir and then you just set for life yeah, or you just, or you just have a, a syringe with the long needle and you jam it in long ways oh and fill and it up s- and squeeze it as you're pulling out that you might put, be good everybody you, from louisiana right now everybody from louisiana right now is saying what the hell are these coffee? guys doing putting hot sauce on boudin <laughs> it's good if you don't do it, did you it's tell good. them about they actually make crawfish boudin? Yeah, or yeah they, they had some. Oh, well, it's good. This is, this is where the story gets good. So Ronnie last summer turns me on. He's like, "Go to what's that town? Uh, Golden Meadow. Go to Golden Meadow. Go to T Pops. When you walk in T Pops, they sell like basically three things: gas, Red Bull, Red Bull, and boudin. And boudin. So you go in there, and they got two kinds. They got pork. Crawfish. Now, we, me and Seth patronized it last summer. Oh, my God. Ate the lit dickens out of it. And this trip, all I've been talking about was wanting to go back to that yeah. damn place and get more of the boudin. So we go in to get the boudin. We, we got there ahead of Jean-Paul. We go in, get some, eat that, some, go back in to get more. Some guy comes. Some guy, <laughs> and to get another bottle of hot sauce. Some guy comes in while we're in our second run and walks in there and goes, Y'all seriously out of Red Bull right now? <laughs> That's when I talked to you a couple of days ago and you told me we had T-Pops right now. 
That's where you were? Yep. So at, then. You were at T-Pop's Bar in Boudin. Yeah. Yep. Oh so yesterday, <laughs> we go in and buy it. We buy the Boudin. Lauren had a bottle of hot sauce with him. Ate that one. I don't know what happened to his bottle of hot sauce. <laughs> Chester went back in to get more and to get a new bottle of hot sauce. Jean-Paul pulls up. He goes in, and he's like going in there, and he's shooting the shit with the people in there. And he comes out and says, I don't mean to be the antagonist, like we just heard him say a second ago. And he said, that's not Boudin. (laughs) (laughs) Is it my turn to comment here? Yep. (laughs) Take it away. You can defend yourself now. (laughs) No, I don't don't need to defend myself. I've eaten Boudin all over this state. I make it a point to go to eat Boudin all all over the state. And I want, real quick, he pointed out that he said, and I bought two of them too. <laughs> yeah, and I ate two of them too. And I, it is delicious. That boudin, quote, air quotes, is delicious. Uh, but even the people working there would say it's more like, they actually told me this. The people there. When you interrogated them. I was at because I wanted to know where I was from, which is from Texas, which explains a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's from Texas. <laughs> And they said, it's more like a rice dressing than a traditional boudin. And I said, oh, it's all put. Now, it is a delicious link of sausage. Because that's what it is. Oh. It's, I mean, boudin is a sausage. If you put the hot sauce on there, especially. So, I have never, ever seen anybody put hot sauce on boudin. So, a bunch of Yankees sitting in a rental suburban with a bottle of hot sauce. <laughs> Dousing it with hot sauce and a mic. The real Cajun over here. <laughs> the real Cajun. <laughs> With his reservoir idea of hot sauce. <laughs> and I will promise you that the, any Louisiana that's listening to this podcast right now is saying, them some bitches just never been out west. Um, like, and out what, south, the southwest, west of, southwest Louisiana. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's all kind of different sauces. So I, I like, look, I like T-Pop's boot and I'll call it boot because that's what they call it. And I'm just, I'm just personally saying for the fa- literally a thousands of different brands and types of boudin that I've eaten, that is the most unlike of boudin that I've ever had. <laughs> it is because it doesn't. But when ha- I go home and say, when I go home and tell people that I've uh, developed a real love for rice dressing, it doesn't, that doesn't sound like anything even remotely interesting. It doesn't really pop off but the But when lips. I go down and say that I'm, a, that I'm now like a real boudin man, and so, you are. That's not stopping so, so, you, man. So, Jean-Paul, you say, so if it doesn't have liver, it's not boudin. Well, what about crawfish boudin? Is it not, not boudin either? I don't like crawfish boudin. <laughs> <laughs> or shrimp boudin. I don't like I any mean, of that. I mean, I like it, but it's like. But is it not boudin now at some point? Does it have liver? Okay, let me ask you or this. The they, make ca- they make cauliflower boudin. They replace the rice with cauliflower. Is that boudin? No. <laughs> why, why isn't that boudin? I guess I call it boudin because it doesn't have rice in it. Do right? I look like a vegan? Well, they still put, I, I they want... still put pork in it. They're doing it because they don't want the carbohydrates. The carb, yeah, see, I, I, I oh. do that sometimes. I replace. It's not a vegetarian thing. It's a keto thing now. You know yeah, what I mean? Cauliflower in there. Cauliflower rice, son. I think. Look, like, listen, man. So there's <laughs> different. Me, there's different shows. Different. Some, so I'm gonna go yeah. back home. This is, you, this is your boudin. <laughs> yeah. Look, here, this is y'all's, this is y'all's boudin. I mean, I'm sure you could have went across the street and it, it maybe have been the more traditional liver boudin, but I mean, to me, to, in, my, in my opinion of, of boudin is, is so, so, so me, sausage, sausage is just no, no cauliflower, 
no no <laughs> rice, just meat and intestine, <laughs> link, you know, encasing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, boudin, and then and then to for me, boudin is just meat and rice. If if there's rice in in encasing. That's boudin, in, in my opinion. Yeah, I was, never, rice, I was never told rice. about the whole I'll liver. Feel and the, rice, the rice is what makes the boudin. Rice, is, rice, or if if you want to use cauliflower, it <laughs> makes the boudin to me. Is what makes it boudin to me. I I appreciate that. Okay, okay. I'm ready to move on. All this, I know listen, is I I can go to T Pops and get that their boudin and sleep easy calling it boudin. Listen, I'm going to have a very hard time going home and saying that I was eating hey, rice this is, this That is, sounds bro, like the stupidest thing this, this is what I'm going to do. You Eat can all go three home and know you weren't being deceived. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all three of y'all, y'all going to send me we y'all all address And I'm going to send you three different boudins from three different places in three different distinct sections of southwest Louisiana. And I don't want to hear if it's better or worse. I just want you to try it. You don't have to give me feedback. I like T-Pops better. I like this better. I don't care about that. What you like is what you like. Yep. I don't give I don't give a damn what, you know, like, but I'm just saying. Listen, man, I'm interested. I'm, I'm only, ha- I'm hacking on so you. So send me Seth, I'm hacking Chester, on you, but I'm Steve, not. you're I sending me addresses. I am very interested in knowing, I'm very interested in all this. Yeah. But well, from an outsider perspective. Okay, you go down to you know this whole thing like you because you're you you're pretty familiar with like all the cuisines in the country, right? I am. They do all the same garbage about chili in the Southwest. Yeah, not Southwest Southwestern U.S. This whole like outrage if it's got this in it, outrage if it's got that in it, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So when you live in an area, uh, you get you get like vested in that stuff, but. When you're not, it seems a little it starts to feel a little academic. Like I would be like, my mom used to make chili and she put kidney beans in it. And then some guy, wherever the hell, what part of the country do you then go like, if it's got beans in it, it's not. Well, you just said it about hunting. It's where you grow up, and you, some people it's think because of where culture. you grew up, you think this is the right way. Yeah. Right? But as you grow out and expand your world of hunting or boudin or of any <laughs> other thing. It becomes to evolve and say, oh, wait, my way is not only the right way. There's other right ways, and nobody is right or wrong in this conversation. It's okay. all it's part just of the culture about what you like and what you region. know. Now, what, what was It'll that boudin you brought over to Venice with us? Rabbitos. Rabbitos. I mean, that was great boudin. That was very See, good. That was what, good boudin. See, wasn't my favorite. Really? I think there's better boudins. Oh, I, I mean, thought that stuff was I like rabbitos, but it's not my favorite. I, I want to move on from boudin because I want to get into yeah. cooking the crawfish because we left uh, out yeah. the cooking, and I want you to tackle okay. cooking, Jean-Paul. But just just out of fairness, I'm endorsing T-Pops. What would you like to endorse if you if if you want, it, let's say, let's say a, a listener out there wants to experience sort of like what you would regard as sort of like the baseline definition of boudin you would suggest that they buy some from who if you are traveling i-10 west and you're going through uh scott louisiana or anywhere in those parishes out west on i-10 stop at billy's or stop at Best now Bud's stop. all mad. No, Bud no, agrees. Oh, he agree. I, I <laughs> knew what he was going to say before his dad. Our, our, our best stop is great, but there are literally. That place was on, yeah. on a yeah. cooking program on TV. Yeah. Best stop. known fits Boudin. There's literally hundreds of places in I-10 once you get west of Lafayette yes. where you can pick up Boudin 
in every gas station and every little meat shop. And so Billy's is one of my favorites. Best Stop is different, but also good. Don's is good. Rabbitohs is good. New News is good. Longyon's is good. G&M Meat Market. It goes on and on and on. Uh, but I would say this. I love your T-Pops endorsement. I'll tell you why. Because if you are coming to southeast Louisiana and you're traveling down Bayou Lafourche and you're going fishing in Port Fouchon or Grand Isle, stop at T-Pops at that shell station get and get you some, some rice boudin. dressing. Oh. Get you some boudin. Okay. Like, because this is boudin here. Right. You know? oh, I'm so, singing hot sauce. I wish I was gnawing on a tea with that right now, man. Oh, that sounds so good. That sounds good. So good. <laughs> right? in the... The bottom right, they got a chest, like a thing. Door opens from the outside. You serve yourself. Bottom right corner. Yep. The top stupid stuff. Bottom left is uh, <laughs> bottom left is crayfish boudin. Which bottom, is good. Bottom right is pork boudin. You, you tried the crayfish one? Yeah, I liked it. That's okay. That one's made in Homa. I asked. Crawfish boudin's made in Homa. The pork boudin's made in Texas. Huh. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, and I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up bubbly doug's place on on x and i'll look at the topography and i'll be like oh that sucker must be over in that little opening over there waypoints also and the ability to share them okay comes in handy every spring whether that's revisiting old waypoints where i've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds this app will help you find more turkeys on x hunt has a special offer for you too Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift. 
especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, it's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame, wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Lay out for me now how to do a crawfish boil as we ate last night. That's the one I'm interested in because that was the best I've ever had. Wow. And I'm not saying there's not 80 ways of doing it, but I'm talking about like last night you did one. Yeah. So I took a little bit of how I grew up doing it and a little bit how, how Bud how Bud and I spent 15 minutes talking about doing it outside the crawfish ponds yesterday. And so what I did is I basically filled up my pot with water and made a vegetable stock with a lot of onions, celery, garlic, mushrooms, and a lot of citrus and oranges, like 24 lemons cut in half and like 10 oranges cut in half, squeezed in my hand and put them in the thing, rolled that to a boil. And um, I added just a little bit of seasoning, dried seasoning in the, in the water and some liquid crab boil what brand, in the water. What's your, what's your preferred brand? Man, there's a there's a couple different ones that are really good. Um, Loco makes a good um, crab boil. Chack Bay seasoning makes a good crab boil. Slappy Mama makes a good one. Zatarans is what I grew up with and is what we used last night. Okay, because that's what we had. And um, I used a little bit of the powder, a little bit of the liquid, and I started rolling that to a boil. Added my potatoes and sausage. And I like to get my potatoes about three quarters of the way there before I add my crawfish. And what was that sausage you put in there? That was smoke, Richard smoked sausage. Okay. Yep. And um, then my crawfish go in. Now, while, like these are you know, early in the season, the crawfish hadn't gotten to their full maturity. So they're on the smaller side. So you got to boil them for a little less time. We did, once you drunk, dump your crawfish in, it knocks that water down to, you know, down the heating, down, down below the yeah, boiling point. Yeah, you put in 40 pounds of them. Yeah. Oh yeah, into and like that, a witch's cauldron, and that and that pot will, and that's why you got to have that high that high uh, burning, you know, propane burner uh, to really keep that that recovery short. Because once that crawfish goes uh, in, it lowers the temperature. It's got to come back up to a boil. Like I said, we boil for three minutes. After that three minutes, I dump a little small bowl of ice in it, and I just let it soak. For I'll soak for thirty minutes, and that's where it, this is like the part that this is the part that gets controversial. Yeah, well, the soak is a little controversial, and also what I did once I put it in the cooler, I took a, and this is kind of where Bud came in because I wanted sometimes those crawfish seasons can be overly salty. A lot of times they can. Okay. Um. So I use less powdered seasoning, more liquid boil than I usually use because liquid doesn't have any salt. And then once the crawfish went into the cooler or ice chest. I sprinkled them with extra salt and a little bit of extra powdered crawfish seasoning and then let them sit and steam and kind of do their own thing. It's not enough to get all over your hands like a lot of places do in West Louisiana, yeah. you know, but, but it, 
it lets that crawfish really speak for itself without overpowering it with a whole bunch of seasoning and spice. Yeah. And when you we talked about that yesterday. Yeah. Uh, for people that love the flavor of crawfish, I, I just never understood why so much seasoning that it masks the flavor of your crawfish. If, you know, I can't see myself eating crawfish and my eyes are crying. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it's just so spicy and... Yeah. I mean, I, I, you understand what I'm saying. 100%. Of and, may, and maybe it's that... Maybe, maybe we got used to adding so much seasoning because at some point... We were used to maybe spillway crawfish yeah. with a lot of fishiness on it, where people didn't purge it really good. Because that's when you get in those wild crawfish, you have to purge. And so maybe people how do you are purge like, hey. wild crawfish? Because we used to pull the mud veins on them. Salt in the water. North. Yeah. So you don't find that salt water kills them. I like to just so this is my my purging method. Mm -hmm. I take an ice chest or or a big bucket and I'll, I'll put them in a champagne or a basket. Put the crawfish in a basket in the water and I put a hose pipe in there running. Mm -hmm. And I just circulate that water. Until that water becomes clear, how many how many hours does that take? Oh, it a takes few minutes. Ten minutes. I mean, uh, with rice craw I'll, with those crawfish, it doesn't take. Yeah, it, it takes. I mean, probably one or two fill ups, and it it's, it makes like I'll I'll fill it up the first time, let it overflow a little bit, pull the crawfish out, dump the water, and that water is going to be dirty. Okay. Dump it, put them back in, fill it back up. At that point, water is going to be a little bit clear, starting to get clear, and then one more time, and that water's crystal clear. You mm -hmm. can drink it. It's it's and, and at that point, that's when I feel my crawfish are ready to go in the pot. And that's for the wild crawfish. Uh, rice uh, rice pine crawfish, too. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I've gotten fishy rice pine crawfish because, yeah. like I said, it's not a, spillway crawfish aren't fishy because they're in the spillway. They're fishy because they're using fish for bait. Yeah, oh. I mean, spillway, I know spillway guys, they use pellets for bait, and those, hmm. there's no fishiness to them. I mean, it, it's, it. that's more about what you're using for bait. A lot of people use fish early in the year because those, those pellets take a, in the cold water take a lot longer to dissolve. So fish brings those crawfish in fast. Yeah. Like come Good Friday when I used to sell crawfish, I would use I'd use fish or or beef melt with the pellet to get that fast. I could run my traps twice a day versus twice once a, a day. day. You so, sell a lot of a lot of crawfish on Good Friday. Oh Good yeah. Good Friday is the like the pinnacle of crawfish sale. Yeah, no one's huh. eating. Everybody's because eating. Seafood. Everyone around yep. here is is is, is Catholic, or, or for most part, are Catholic. It's very very predominant religion around here. So, and the the thing is, you don't eat meat on yeah, Fridays. Sure, yeah, yeah. But uh, Good Friday know, is. But like, it's kind of like it's become part of a tradition to have it be that that's yeah. The and then like yep. like Good Friday is like the day that everybody gets together with their families and boils seafood and eats seafood and and at that time of year, crawfish are in the height of their season. Like that I is see. like the the pinnacle of crawfish season. They're not. They're still that. They're not fully mature where they're red, hard, and hard to eat, and you know. But they're not that little baby crawfish. They're just right, perfect in the middle. It's just that perfect crawfish. That's yeah. And you got spillway. You got rice. And look, spillway crawfish. Some I've seen dirty rice pound crawfish. I've seen clean spillway crawfish. Spillway crawfish tend to be a little more muddier sometimes, just because they they've been in that swampy mud. So you may have to give them one additional rinse down. But I like to purge boat crawfish more for what this what they're eating because. A crawfish that's been eating fish, when you go to suck the, the head fat out, you, you get that, yep, that, got that, it. that fishy oof. You know? You'll smell it. Yeah. Okay, uh, Jean-Paul, quick hit the, the soak. Mm -hmm. What's happening during the soak? So uh, the, the soak, it's the crawfish are going to float when they boil. When they're done, they, they're, they're going to be sitting at the top of the water. And the soak is when you add that ice and let them sit, they start to absorb all that liquid. 
and become, you know, they're not buoyant anymore. That water goes into the head cavity, into the tail cavity, and they sink. Um, and they kind of hit like an equilibrium with yeah. the brine, the, 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 the liquid. Yeah. And I like, I like juicy crawfish. When I suck the head, I want to get all that interior fat and the juice from the broth, which makes purging the crawfish that much more important because they're sitting in all the water they've been boiled in for 30 minutes, just soaking all that in. So if you don't purge it, you're going to be soaking in dirty, nasty, seasoned, and salty water, but not clean. Gotcha. Yeah, I find, and you'll get a grittiness to them, too. Like, so if, you don't, yeah. like if you don't purge them, yeah. sometimes they'll, they'll be, they'll be so gritty the, when you soak the head. The, like. the soak will make them juicier, will also make them more seasoned, because they're taking in that liquid you know, from that soak. Got it. And another thing too with the, with the shock, I find the shock helps with the peeling. Because mm. when you hit them with that, it makes that 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 uh the, the tail meat separate from the shell. Got it. And the soak, I think the soak does the same yeah. thing as well. It, it you had, the time had to separate. you put salt in the water that you boiled them in? I put a little bit. Yeah, yeah. you see, I don't put salt at all. Yeah. Because yeah. I find if I add salt to the water, they don't peel as good. Mm. Hmm. I just put a little bit of the of the powdered boil, uh, not any iodized yeah, salt. Yeah. Just yeah. And I'll I'll boil crawfish three minutes, and then that's what he did. Oh, that's what he did. Three. You minutes. don't do a soak. Yeah, but for about thirty seconds to a minute, and I take I just take off the basket. I wait about a minute, just that slight cool down. I'll take that basket and put it back in the same pot, and they all sink. That every one of them will sink. That when they do that, it's because they sucked up. They got, they were shocked, and they suck up the seasonings that are in your water. I'll leave them in about that second dip, thirty seconds, a minute, and I pull them out, and that's it. And we don't, we cook a lot with crawfish meat, so we don't oversalt it or overseason them. Because when I make a, an example, my wife makes a, a crawfish fricassee. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't want to sit there and eat, and it it tastes like I'm eating Zadaran's crab bowl. I want to. I want to. Good point. I want to eat the crawfish and taste the flavor yep. of those crawfish. Crawfish had too fair. Another and look, any fancy restaurant in the city. You can walk into an order crawfish head to fair. You know that. You're, you're not going to walk in one of them and eat, and it tastes Zadaran's crab ball or whatever. When you walk into a grocery store and buy a pack, a one-pound pack of crawfish tails, yeah, and you can buy Louisiana crawfish tails, but you can also buy Chinese. You buy Louisiana crawfish tails. When you open it and taste them, no salt, there's no seasoning. It's just a natural crawfish. Yeah. And you use that to cook, to get that, yep. you understand? So when I, when I cook crawfish, we're only cooking for me and my wife. You cook, you're cooking for a secondary use, not just the boil. Yeah, I'm, I'm eating them for me and my wife, but then I got 20 pounds, I got a peel, and I have a commercial vacuum packing machine. How, how long have you been married? 123 years next year. <laughs> Reincarnated, <Yeah>. huh? <laughs> what, what's your what's your opinion on freezing with the fat? I do. You, you talking about with, 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 with like tail meat, fat, tail fat, the fat though, the yellow fat. Oh yeah, as much as I can, I'd keep. Yeah, it Yeah, I do. But y'all don't, don't find it gets kind of when you when you when you, you freeze gotta the fat, use it, it right away. 
Yeah, you can't leave it. You gotta use it within three or four months. Okay. I I'm not gonna leave crawfish in my freezer for a year. We eat we eat it tw- twelve mm. months out of the year. We're cooking with crawfish, so it doesn't it doesn't stay long enough in my freezer to get rancid. Okay. So you know, they just you gotta okay. if you if you're planning on keeping some longer, mm-hmm. you. Pull the gut line off. Yeah, that's, that's what we do a lot. Yeah, and rinse them. How long it'll be. Rinse them good with fresh water, and then pack them, and good. you can keep them a while. Okay, Ronnie, you ready? Yeah. What you got? We're gonna move on. The last thing we're gonna cover today is potentially my new favorite way to eat ducks. Walks through it. The rooted duck. Yep. Rooted. Rooted. You duck. like it or don't, Bud? You down on it? That's the way we were. We were raised on that. My grand, my grandmother. Listen, this is gonna blow your mind. <laughs> Just, no, listen. I'm listening. Recently, for Ida, the building got knocked down. I can go show it to you. Hurricane Ida. For Ida, that was my grandmother's building. She would clean duck in, and up until Ida knocked it down. She died in 1976. You'd walk through the door, and there were still duck feathers in the spider webs in the ceiling. <laughs> no, it was that yeah. is awesome. Up That's until, cool. Now, a lot of people <laughs> thought that it's why we know so much about duck hunting in my family. A lot of people <laughs> thought market hunting ended in the 30s. Yep. My grandmother was still cleaning ducks in the 70s. From market hunters, three, four, five hundred ducks a day. No shit. Uh, like black market market hunting. In front hunting. of God, what I'm telling you, and all the game wars knew about it, and not once was she ever bothered. They never came and they could have came there and not once. They let her. She did that all her life. She would. She'd save all the breast feathers, and in the summertime. My grandfather would put it in some long tubes and dry it in the yard. And then in the fall, my grandma would make pillows. Down, I still got a down pillow from my grandmother. There's a spoonbill head in the pillow. <laughs> <laughs> I still have it. Uh, me yeah. <laughs> You're <laughs> kidding you, me. I guess a, a duck head fell in the pillow and they never found it. And you can feel it. It's a spoonbill. <laughs> <laughs> I've been sleeping on it since I'm six, seven years old. That's uh-huh. my that's my go to pill. <laughs> my grandmother's With down pill with the spoonie. And she liked to cook the, the routine. What's that word again? That's uh, the, damn that word. That's the way the high, what's the dish called? The dish routine. It's a French word. It's it's a French word for roasting. Okay. So roasted. There it is. It's just slow cooking. You brown it. Add a little water. Comes back, then it's just grease. Add a little water. And you just cook for hours. Add a little water. Bring it brown. Yeah. Add a little water in yeah. a black pot. Correct. Yeah, mostly a black pot or a magnolite pot. Something yeah. that you could really scrape the bottom. And it, gonna, we call that run. routine. Yeah. We'll do that with duck, with a deer roast, pork. a beef roast, with a pork roast. Routine. Yeah. You got anything real negative to say about this, Jean-Paul? 
Why am I being portrayed as the <laughs> negative person? So I'm just giving some perspective. So, so I like it. That, devil's advocate. He's like, yeah, I don't mean to play the antagonist. No, no. I, so, I love that routine. So, I love that routine. So, so, so the routine duck traditionally, like Bud said, you you're gonna you're gonna brown it. I like the I like the but, brown. Oh, uh, you gotta back up. Okay. Because here's the this, this is very important for people to know. Okay. I got a dead duck laying there. All right. Tell them, you gotta you gotta walk Start us through day, the three your three stage plucking method. Just shot it. Yep. It's okay. It's still flopping. All right. Nope. Just stop flopping. Just finish wringing his neck. <laughs> Ring his. <laughs> Sorry. Right, so I got your duck. Got a fresh killed duck. Get back to the to the camp. What I'm gonna do first thing? I'm gonna cut the wings off at the joint because I don't like you know if you don't first keep, joint. The, no, not the first joint. Yeah, You're not cutting it off at the body, but you get. Yeah, the first, the first, yeah, the like, first joint out. You still got that that, that long, his elbow. Yeah, yeah, at his, at his elbow. You cut him at the elbow. I like to cut him at the joint because I can't stand when I got those sharp bones poking into. Yeah, my there's back enough of that back. from all the pellets. You know, you don't yeah. need to add to it. So yeah. I cut him at, at the wing joints, and I'm gonna give him a rough pluck. You know, I'm not gonna focus a lot on those wing feathers because they're really hard to get. I'm gonna get all the breast feathers off, back feathers off, butt feathers off, all, most of the leg feathers off, and then. Once He's ninety five percent plucked when you're done. Yeah, about ninety five. Yeah, ninety to ninety five percent plucked, and then I'm gonna get I'm gonna, uh get my water to a, a rolling boil. I'm gonna get a small small crawfish pot and I'm gonna boil the water. Once I got that water boiling, I'm gonna take that duck and I'm gonna dip them for ten to fifteen seconds. And once uh, once I'm done dipping, I pull them out and I'm gonna dry them with an old towel. Get them nice and dry, and then I'm gonna then remove the rest of those. Big feathers, yeah, which come off right easy. You, just, yeah, you can just the, that, the rub boiling, it with your hand, and they'll come off. Yeah, the boiling is gonna uh, open up those pores and, some, and allow those, especially like in particular the wing feathers, mm-hmm. comes off real easy. Yeah, everything that would have been a pain in the ass, everything just that you sat there being a pain in the ass, comes off. Basically, like butter, the same you know? way they pluck a chicken mm-hmm. in yeah. a factory. Yeah, hot water. Yeah, just rub it off. So, and then once once we do that, I'm gonna. Um, so if if I'm at my house and I don't have to keep a head or a head the head on, I'm gonna go straight to the deboning process. Before I'm you gonna, burn it? Oh, so you got me on that. I was so, really so, yeah. for you to say. So, <laughs> and what's your guys' word for that? Grille. Grille. So, so after the boiling process, once you got your ducks all nice and pretty, you're gonna grille them. I'm gonna take the hot water off and I'm gonna use that burner and I'm gonna hold the bill and the leg and I'm gonna pass that that duck through the fire just for a few seconds each. Burn those little just hairs. Just to burn off. all those little hairs off any other rain, maybe feather I missed or something. I don't know what the hell those little hairs on a duck are called. I don't know, but you have a. a I don't know. I know like, like the, so the guard hair. <laughs> so I know like so the pin feather, the pin oh, feather. That's no. another thing that that's really good about boiling is the the pin feather comes out really easy. Mm-hmm. And I like yeah. to take a knife in my thumb and just yeah, that's a good trick I learned out. from you. Yep. And. Uh, it's a great we, way to we get actually, pin feathers out. Yeah, we call Pinch the, it between your knife blade and your thumb. We call yeah. we call the pin feather uh, a poussin. A poussin. Now, didn't, it wasn't Cade's grandma. They used to her, her nickname was poussin because she used to pull all the poussins out. Pew. <laughs> Pew? Okay. Pew. Yeah. Cade's yeah. grandma's nickname was Pew. Because she used to, she, she, her job was to pull all the pin feathers out. Okay. Um. So, yeah. So, once you got the pin feathers out, going to grille that duck. To, and then once, once you grille them, you're just going to give them a little slap, slap around, pat off those. Those that that burnt hair off, then like so. And at this point, it looks like a beautiful. Beautiful. You you ain't you're not ever gonna see a more beautiful duck that's been just been boiled and grilled. I mean, that's just yeah. You put that shit on the front of Better Homes and Gardens, man. One of them ducks laying there. Yeah. So 
so if like I said, if, if I'm at my house, I'm gonna go straight to the deboning process because mm-hmm. that way I ain't gotta stick my hand up in the cavity to pull the guts out. Oh yeah. So what I do is I'm gonna take the duck, like I showed you, and I'm gonna split right down the breast. I'm gonna come around the wing joint, around the back of the duck, to the leg joint, and then you get the, those halves of ducks like we had. And then once I've got the two halves, you got that that body core. It's a boneless breast, full wing, full leg. Yeah, correct. Every edible thing is off that duck. Every, there is not a piece of meat left on that duck. So now I haven't guttered them yet. So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to make a slit under the breastplate and I'm going to pull that breastplate up. Yep, like you're opening you, a hatch. Like you're opening a hatch. The heart, the liver, and the gizzard is going to be sitting right there. Mm-hmm. And you just pull them out, put them to the side, and I'm going to do all my ducks like that. And then I'm going to come back to the to the, uh, the gizzard, which we call the gizier. And uh, I'm going to cut on each side of that silt sack and I'm going to have two pieces, two little nu- gizzard nuggets. That's another trick I learned from you. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I used Good to go trick. through all the hassle, open the sons of bitches up. And scraping them. And scraping them. But then I wind up with exactly what you wind up with. Yeah, yeah you just cut off and yeah, each it's side. Like, it's a stupid. Yeah. Like, I had no idea I was wasting so much time. Same here, man. I was doing it. And like, I wind up with exactly the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, I mean, you lose no meat and then. No, so you wind up with, with uh, I don't know what I was doing. Yeah, and then, then it makes I so like, much sense. When I'm right? cleaning ducks, <laughs> I, I like I like to re- I like to reward my dog when after a good hunt of uh you know she's she's de- she does more work than any of us out there so I like to give her I'm not a big liver fan I'll feed her the livers and uh, I give and her the, the gizzard cores and the and the and the traps and the traps, traps. the traps. traps. <laughs> How many ducks have you and I cleaned together? <sighs> Plenty. <laughs> so, Ronnie, a we, lot. Plenty. we shot some shot some Galanoo. Would you do the same thing with Galanoo? What you mean? I mean that same process, or is it? Oh no. Like, so, so the Galanoo, I like to start by cutting the wings off, yeah. and then I'm going to slit their throat. Mm. Put just there's a where their crops at. You got yeah. a, a lot of skin. I give it a, a little slit, peel that skin a little bit off the breast, and I'm going to stick my finger down. The uh, I guess where the wishbone is. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna pull the head and pull the wishbone, and boom, that breast is gonna come out nice and pretty. And like I said, if I'm at my house, I don't need to leave a wing. So by cutting those wings off, the skin just peels right off, and you get a perfect breast, no feathers, no cleanup. Yeah. I'm gonna toss that in a bucket of water, and then like, just like with well, the then duck, you hand it to Chester the debraster. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I will say about those Galanu, holy cow. Yeah, it's a good bird. I'd rather, yeah. oh, rather eat a coot than a duck. Yeah. And and the yeah. thing, too, about that. that, I, that I, I guess that's what y'all talking about when you're saying Galileo. No, no, it's a rod, like. A rod pudo. Oh, y'all were eating the rod pudo. The rod yeah. pudos. <laughs> yeah. Um, coot, American well, coot is a pudo. Uh, Galileo is a rod similar. pudo. Oh, yeah. Very yeah. similar. Yeah. So, and another thing, back to like when I pull the breast out that way, just like the duck, it's like when you open that hatch, there's the gizzard, the heart, and the liver just sitting right on top. Yeah. No having to dig through the thraps, none of that. Thraps. Yeah, getting all <laughs> I love getting that all nasty. Thrip. So, <laughs> yeah. So then, there you are. You got your duck. Now go on, keep keep making the dish. Oh, so, okay. So you got your halves. Now, now I've got my two halves of my duck. I'm going to go and get a Magnolite pot or a black pot, and I'm going to put a little bit of olive oil, a little bit of grease, just enough to, to wet the bottom. That way I don't get a, a hard stick when I throw it in. Sure. And I'm gonna take those. I'm gonna take those duck halves, and I'm gonna lay them fat down on a medium heat, and I'm gonna start to cook that skin down and get as much fat out of that skin to make my grease. I hope people are listening to what you're saying right now. So yeah, I get that. Get that. That duck fat. You got out. like listen. I don't want people to understand something. You got like your Ten Commandments. Okay. You got like the Constitution. You got like the Declaration of Independence. 
and then you got this recipe. Yeah. <laughs> this shit is all sort of like, you know what I mean? So listen. Go so, on. So I get those ducks half down, fat down, and I'm going to brown them down till the just the tops of them start to cook. And the a big thing is you do not want to over-brown them because then those ducks are going to get real knot and hard, and they're not going to get tender. So as as they get to where I like them brown, I'm going to pull them out and put them in a metal a metal bowl and get them all out. And once I've browned all my ducks, I'm going to take my, my trinity, my, 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 uh, my onions, my bell peppers, and my, my celery. Diced bell. Okay, so it's diced. Diced bell peppers. And then Jean-Paul give the, give the official ra- ratio. Yeah, I mean, I always Equal use like parts a, of each. No, that's nah, not what he I says. did. I go, more I go, onion. I go two more to onions, one, two yeah. to one to one. So more onion, two two parts onion, one part bell pepper, one part celery. And I don't yeah. eat celery. Yeah, you don't put celery. So I completely avoid the celery. Yeah. I see a lot Let of. Me, uh, can, bud, can I ask you a quick question? Yeah, sure. Just a one word answer is fine. Two, three word answer. What ratio do you cook rice? Mm. First joint. <laughs> first joint that is, that is that's how i've done it yeah a lot of people i can cook you like a that. pot of rice blindfolded <laughs> I, I swear to god blindfolded. it's my dad working offshore i learned i can cook anything my dad i saw my dad what you doing i'm cooking rice or what you why you why are you sticking your finger he said doesn't matter how much rice you put in there you measure the water up to that first joint where you're touching the rice, it's gonna come out perfect every time. I've been doing it for sixty, for fifty-five years. It comes out perfect every time. There's your three-word answer. <laughs> <laughs> the first joint. Right? The, the first, first joint. <laughs> all right, so, all right, so all right. Back, back to the back to the rest. Your, your so, trinity: your onions, so, so, bell. Two part onion, one part bell pepper, one part celery, diced up. Yeah, and throw in the Pope's hat, which is a, a little bit of garlic, okay. a little chopped garlic. So I'm gonna throw that into my duck fat grease that I've just made by browning down those ducks. And oh, also with my Trinity, I'm gonna throw in my gizzards and my hearts, and brown and, and stir gonna, those I'm, around. I'm gonna brown that down, get them get them onions sweating, and I'm gonna brown them down to the consistency I like, which you know, w- with any anything you just get it browned down and thickened. And then once I'm to the browning process, I like, I'm going to take those ducks. And I'm going to dump them back in to the onions and give them a little more of a browning mm-hmm. down in there. And I'm going to take that bowl that the ducks are just sitting in a lot of, a lot more grease and blood's going to have leaked out those ducks. And I'm going to put some water in there, throw that around, dump it in. And mm-hmm. then I'm going to fill the pot up just above where, where everything's sitting in, in some chicken stock and some chicken broth. With a little bit of water, and I'm gonna bring it just to where it's above that. Um, there, and so I'm, and then I'm gonna bring my, get my, get that boiling. Now this, so most people would just continue to add as the water would drop or the stock would drop. They'd add a little water, add a little water, add a little water. I have three ways that I like to do it. I do it that way where you just add water every time it drops down, mm-hmm. or I'll put it in the oven on a burner. On a burner, you're, you're on, adding when it's on the burner. I'm adding water when it's on the burner. Um, or I'll put it in the oven for a couple hours is my second way I do it. And then my third way I do it, like if, uh, I'll, sometimes I'll just sit there, I'll throw it. If I, if I don't really have a lot of time to cook it, or if I want to eat it the next day, I'm going to take those ducks and I'm going to throw them in a slow cooker mm. overnight. And then, that, then, so 
The next step is once you either way you do it, you're gonna so you can do the ball down process where you just ball it down, add water, ball it down, add water until the ducks are tender, and then it's ready. So Ronnie, yesterday when we made the recipe for this, we had a we had an extra ingredient that we got from the bayous. Oh yeah, so yeah we did. Well, add, but we, you don't always have that. You, you can yeah, add. you don't always have it. A lot of times I add I'll add mushrooms whenever I don't have gizzards and hearts, just to to kind of imitate that that yep. that feeling. But we we actually went out and got those uh those oyster mushrooms. Uh, champions. The champions. The, champions, the wild mushrooms, the wild, the wild champions, and we we did add that in there too. So uh, that came out really good. Uh, yesterday, I I used the oven method because we went out crawfishing, so that uh, was easy. I just I got it. I got the water hot, took it off the stove, stuck it in the oven for two hours while we were crawfishing. Came back. So with the ball down process. Once you're done, once you've got it, the, the ducks tender and the the gravy to the consistency you like, it, it's done. It's ready to put it over some rice. Uh, now with the slow cooker and the oven method, once I've got the ducks to the, the tenderness that I want, I'm gonna put it back on the stove and I'm gonna finish off with the ball down method to ball down and get that gravy the, mm -hmm. just to the consistency and the darkness that I like. So then you just let it rip and boil that water off. Yeah, cook it down, brown it a little bit, get it. You know, get that. Get, if it's not, if it's because a lot of times when you when you use a slow cooker in the oven, it, your gravy's gonna be a little lighter. Like yep. last night, the gravy was a little a little lighter than. I, I so you just like, ro you but, just roll boil it off there. Yeah, yep. roll roll boil it off. But you don't want to stir too heavy, especially because then the ducks will fall apart. So you just want to kind of yeah brown. Just make sure nothing's sticking to Man, the bottom. That was so good. I wish we and had some routine, leftovers. The, the word routine. We cook everything like that. Just a few days ago, I. While we were at the pond, I mentioned to you we had a campsite where we go do two, three nautas and hunt coyotes at night. Yep. We cooked a rabbit the mm -hmm. same way, yep. but without the trinity. Just yeah. browned it, kept adding it over a campfire in a black pot, add a little water, salt and pepper, and when the rabbit got tended, we ate that over rice. Me and my friend Jason, that was there, we cooked that. Two, a couple of times so far, we've mm -hmm. done a rabbit. Swamp rabbits. No, raised. Raised rabbits. Farm rabbit. Okay. Jason raises rabbits. Got you. Uh, California something and a, a New Zealand, they huge, huge rabbit. Got yeah. it. Mm. It's pretty actually, good. That, that cleaning method I was telling you about, both the, the, the rapudos and the, uh, the ducks actually came from Bud, Bud and their family. That's, oh, that, was, okay. that, was, that was a trick that they showed me. Yep. I used uh, my dad and I just used to just give them a, a real good pluck, and then we grill them. That boiling action actually yep. came in. From I like them. that boiling action. Yep. Man, it, that's it, something I'm taking. Nice that's yeah. something I'm taking away. And, from and that. the thing with the, with the rapudos, that, that that process, a lot of times, like we go do these coot shoots, and where we go out there, we'll go out there with a whole bunch of us, and we'll shoot. <laughs> Bud was the coot shoot man. He was the one who showed us the coot shoot too. And I, we used to go camp out there in high school in the blind just. Everybody I got a T-shirt. I got a, I got them all. I don't know if I get. Yeah, I, I got one. You gave me one. Kuchut, uh, Pudo Palooza. Pudo Palooza. <laughs> I got them all. Some T-shirts. Uh, uh, Lake Buff. Lake Buff. Kuchut Palooza. But yeah, there, there was many times we had enough people. We we came back with over a hundred Pudos. Because you're allowed fifteen a day. You're allowed fifteen per person per day, yeah. and we would go out there with a big group. Hence, when he told you how to pull the brass, the whole brass off. We'd sit there, three or four of us, and yeah, we'd make a hundred coot in 
dirty man. It's, yeah, we, we, we sit there we and we, we make an assembly yeah. line. Like one guy was cutting wings. Yeah. One guy, one or two guys pulling breasts. The next guy was pulling gizzards and hearts. Yep. And it was an assembly line. And, and like you said, we would we clean 100 pudos in 30 minutes. Strangely, every man. time we would hunt Lake Buff, we had to have some type of assembly line. Yeah. Frogs. <laughs> yeah, we we had to have an assembly line to we, clean. We go to we go to Lawn Shed. Uh, <laughs> Lawn Shed was was the cleaning factory. Was the cleaning factory? Yeah, same thing with ducks. It was like an assembly line. We had some people plucking. We had, we had a guy cutting wings. Everybody plucking. Someone boiling. Someone rubbing. And it, the, the process would be. You half remember the, time. Uh, the episode in Mississippi on the snow goose hunt? Yeah, that was an assembly line. Oh yeah. I mean, there were feathers. When we got through, it looked like it had snowed in that yard. <laughs> yeah, we, we had what? It was windy. We, had, we were plugging, we were, we were cutting them feathers over the snow geese. And well, we were skinning the snows and plucking the specks. Yeah, it looked like it had snowed in that whole field behind the camp. <laughs> it was all the feathers from the yeah, snow had, geese and, and the ducks. We had shot, what? We had, we, I, I think know. we had 10 of us. So, I mean, we shot, Too like, many. we shot like 60 ducks and like 90 geese. I want to, um, we're going to close out, but I want to share with you guys a recipe that I think you'll be interested in. I already told Jean Paul. I wrote it down. The reason you'll like it is because it involves ducks and it involves rice. But this is from a northern. And a first joint of a finger. No, I didn't know about any of that, man. <laughs> my rice sucks compared to your guys' rice. The back of my rice bag has been lying to me my whole life. Try what they tell it. you in the back of the bag. What I told you, I'm not joking. Try it. Oh, listen, man. I'm going. When you, the tip of your finger touches the rice, if the water's at this first joint, it's going to come out perfect. You seen every, this man's paws, though? Every single time. That knuckle's high. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> you got a high knuckle. You got to go to low, low high knuckle. It doesn't matter. Every knuckle. single one of us, you do it, it's yep. going to be perfect every time. I have been... When you, I don't know if you've ever read the back of a rice bag. What they tell you to do is they tell you to do two to one. Yeah. So you a put cup the, of rice, two cups of water. Yeah, you put the rice in there, you put the water in there, bring it to a boil, one, and then I cook it till two. the water's gone. <laughs> I cook it till the water's gone, and it just kind of looks right. I let it sit, then I fluff it. But my rice sucks compared to you guys' rice. You can't, you can't fluff it. I cook it in a pot too, and we camping and all. Uh, rice cook or a pot. The finger, and when the water's gone, don't fluff your rice. You just put the cover on and turn the fire just barely. Like you, you try to mimic what the rice cooker's doing. Mm -hmm. he, he knows what I'm talking about. You, you, as low you as know, it can go. Well, yeah, you just turn it down low, 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 and leave it a few minutes. And when you open that rice pot, it's going to be perfect. Let me tell you real quick, though, what I, what I made the other day that I thought was good, like phenomenally good, is I cook, the, I cook my ducks in a, what you guys call a black pot, like a cast iron skillet. Cast iron. So I, I got my halves. I sear them skin side down. This is the way I eat 99% of the ducks I eat. I sear the half, just like Ryan described. I sear the half skin side down on, a, on the stovetop. I flip it skin side up and put it in a 400-degree oven for a few minutes i eat them very rare when you pull them out you got all that duck fat that rendered out in that skillet then i took old rice that i'd cooked the day before and make like a fried, fried rice. rice yeah duck fat fried rice yeah that sounds good i'm gonna try oh it for sure. man yeah i'm gonna i want to try fat that fried oh, rice is that. 
coming coming to a real Cajun restaurant near you. Yep. When I come down and get my restaurant at the real Cajun. Our kids, so when I, I had that rice dressing and so whatnot I, in there. So at your restaurant, <laughs> we're going to have that fried rice, boudin. No. And right. every table's going to have a tank with hot sauce coming yep. down. <laughs> and the, the reason you'll know, I don't, there's not even going to be a sign. You'll know it's the right restaurant when you see a reservoir of hot sauce <laughs> bolted to the roof. It's like the water, t- the Galliano water tower. Yeah, the right water tower full of hot sauce. Tons of little hoses You're coming gonna down. You're going to have to get an 18-wheeler coming from every aisle and every week. Oh. Bringing a load of hot sauce. All right, guys. I, this has been a great trip, man. I learned so much about cooking down here. A lot about cooking. I really appreciate it. And, Bud, I appreciate your generosity yesterday, letting us go over and pull a harvest off your pond. Actually, it was an honor for me to have y'all here. And yeah, very I kind I saw the smiles you. on your faces, and y'all looked like y'all had a good time. So, I, I mean, that's all that matters. That oh, was a great time. And Ronnie Collins, thank you for everything, showing us all around. Jean-Paul, all the great cooking stuff, all the hanging out, all the corrections. I was waiting for some sort listen, of no, negativity. No, listen, man, it made it, it, it uh, having the, uh, you know, all the context, the the culinary context was very helpful. I'm only teasing about the, like, well, you know, agonizing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, everything I learned about Boudin and what is and it isn't, I, I appreciate all that stuff. Thank you. Stay tuned till next episode. Thanks, everybody. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins.